Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you know, boy? Go to the last car. The last car is a half mile down the track. Go to the last car if you want to ride the train. <laughs> You got two minutes to see if you can do a Jesse Owens down there. But we leaving. <laughs> wow. You and your grandmother too, and she's on crutches. Wow. She better learn how to run like Jesse. <laughs> Who was also a victim of white supremacy. Absolutely. Hitler said that. Mm. Call him an animal. When when wow. Jesse Owens ran around that track and beat everybody doing it. Hitler said, hey, that's, that's, that's not even in the rules. In marathon running, the hat trick entails three accomplishments, doing at least 100 races, running in each of the U.S.'s 50 states, and completing a marathon on all seven continents, which means marathoning in Antarctica. Now, among the fewer than 60 runners worldwide who've achieved that feat, only three are black. But check this. Two of those three are St. Louis natives. And what are the odds? They're also alumni of the same grade school, Clark Elementary, a decade apart, but the very same building. Their stories are the focus of the documentary, We Are Distance Runners, The Marathon Hat Trick, here to give us a sense of what folks can expect when it screens tomorrow at the Alamo Drafthouse as part of the St. Louis International Film Festival, we welcome those two hat trickers. Lisa Davis and Tony Reed, who's also the director of We Are Distance Runners. Tony and Lisa, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Well, thank you thank for having you. Me. That 2016 Richmond Marathon in Virginia, Tony, where she saw you and other runners from the National Black Marathoners Association, or NBMA, and you all had bibs on with Free to Run 1865 on them. Now, at that race, Tony, was your group of folks the only black competitors? Uh, yes. Uh, we were organized in 2004. And um, as we were the only national uh, black distance running organization. So even though we have marathon in our name, We've always been open to runners of all distances. Mm. So um, we always pick a location where there's both a marathon, a half marathon, and a 5 or 10K, so that there's something for everyone. Okay. And was the inspiration so, for starting this group, um, did it come out of the the lack of black runners you were seeing or... Um, you were running with? Uh, yes, it um, came out of the fact that we did not see that many black distance runners. Mm -hmm. And we decided that we would go ahead and form this organization. Mm -hmm. And our mission has been to encourage African Americans to pursue distance running 
Uh, we offer college scholarships. And we also wanted to recognize the accomplishments of African-American distance runners. Right. Now, I mean, other than the races themselves, what other kinds of competition uh, are happening at these marathons, whether it's you know, between people or just within yourselves? Well, I, I will tell you this. I I like to run trail, and when I and I like to do distance running, and it's not really a competition. But I have been asked point blank to my face if I were like in the right place. I went to run a, a, a hundred mile race in South Carolina. It was called the Knock on Wood uh, Do Not Finish uh, 100 Miler in Greenville, South Carolina, and it was a hundred mile race. They had it was all trail. It was a hundred k. There was a fifty mile, a fifty k. And so, or you can do it with a team. And so that I was, we all had different color bibs and I didn't have my bib belt on at the time. Mm. I was getting ready and all that. And I was by myself. I was unsupported. I was going as a solo hundred mile runner by myself. And someone asked, well, what team are you in? I said, like, oh, I'm not doing a team. Well, you're kind of early for the 50K. Well, I'm not doing a 50K. Well, you know, the, the, right now, the 50-miler doesn't start. So I'm not doing the 50-miler. Okay, so you're here for the 100K. No, I'm actually going to pull my bib out. I'm here for the 100-miler. And they just looked at me. Just looked at me. There was no – they just looked. That's all they could do was look. And I, and I will tell you, I came in second of all women on that race. Mm-hmm. But I was looked at as wire here. And I will tell you, I've shown up for one – ultra trail run after the other being the only African-American there mm-hmm. and wondering is why is she here? And when I finish and finish well, it's like, Oh, okay. I guess they can do that. Yes. And, and, Cause I may not look like I can, and maybe I was, I'm not represented like that, but yeah. So I've had people come up and I'm just as nice as I can be, but I'm like, I'm in the right place and I trained and I'm going to do it by myself. Right. There's no, I have no crew support. I am my crew support. Mm-hmm. And this brings us then to this documentary, We Are Distance Runners, The Marathon Hat Trick. Tony, you've been distance running for many years now. And, you know, you and Lisa, clearly you've been connected for quite some time. What was the catalyst for creating this documentary film? That's a good question. The, the catalyst behind creating this documentary is kind of tied to the first documentary that I did that came out uh, this year, earlier this year, um, called Breaking Three Hours, Trailblazing African-American Women Marathoners. Um, and that documentary, the focus was on, I guess you might say, more elite uh, female distance runners. Mm-hmm. And we saw the immediate impact as far as more African-American women pursuing breaking a marathon in under three hours, mm. running one in under three hours. Uh, with this one, we wanted to focus on what I would call your, your average distance runner who worked hard and ended up achieving goals in multiple areas. So with this one, we focused on individuals um, who ran a mile, all the way up to individuals such as uh, Lisa, who have run 100-mile races. And uh, we wanted to create these positive role models. Uh, when I was at the starting line of my very first marathon in 1982, 
there were about four or five hundred runners, but only four or five were, were black. And while I was in the starting line area, the white runners around me were telling me that I was in the wrong race, mm. and that I sounds familiar. I needed to I needed to pursue something shorter. But they didn't know that because I had role models, one of which was Dick Gregory, who's from St. Louis. Right. And I knew that in 1976, he ran from L.A. to New York and averaged 48 miles a day over 71 days. So on one hand, I'm thinking, if he could do average 48 miles a day, what's 26.2 miles in one day? <laughs> it's nothing. And... Um, my other role model is my great-grandfather, Benjamin Coleman. So he was born in 1840, which meant he lived the first 25 years of his life as a slave on the Windsor Plantation outside of Port Gibson, Mississippi. And I could just see him perhaps wanting to go further. But the slave master was telling him, you can't go beyond the gates, and you cannot run. And that's something they told a lot of slaves back then, you know, you can't run because if you're seen running, they're believing that maybe you're trying to escape. Right, right. So they wanted to put Benjamin Coleman in a box. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I didn't want to live in a box that other people put me in. So I always saw running as as freedom, as representing freedom Mm -hmm. and not setting limits on myself. Uh, that's the reason why the, the logo for the National Black Marathoner is 1865, which is when slavery ended, and thereafter we were free to run. Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, for you, do you share any of, I mean, it, obviously some of the experiences uh, you were responding there to what Tony was talking about around his first ever marathon and being told that he was in the wrong place. But are there other ways in which you relate with what he's talking about regarding, you know, inspiration um, and maybe challenging uh, myths that exist about what black Americans and maybe specifically what black American women can do? Oh, absolutely. I I, I came up in the Marine Corps. I did 24 years in the military um, for the United States Marine Corps. And so I ran some, but I never did distance running. And I would do like a half marathon, let's say. And then I found out that Oprah Winfrey, and Oprah Winfrey is a billionaire, but Oprah Winfrey is not the elite athlete he was just talking about in his first documentary. She literally, I feel like we have the same type body, you know, body shape. And so I, I thought to myself, you know, no one, no one ever says that, hey, you, or, or say, you don't look like you can run distance. But I thought, well, Oprah didn't look like she can run distance, but she ran 26.2 miles of the Marine Corps Marathon. So that's mm-hmm. when I decided I'm going to do the same exact thing. I'm going to go out and run a marathon because Oprah did it, and she and I have some very similar things. And so when you show up like that, you, people will tell you, I may not have been told for the marathon, well, you can't do it. But what I have been told is, you know, a lot of people don't finish. A lot of people can't do it. It's harder than what it looks. You know, like basically – without telling me I'm in the wrong place, saying to me, you know, this is a, a big task. You're probably in the wrong boat. You're not going to be able to row this boat. And, you know, I, I've i learned from that experience, though. Know, 
I, Antonio, tell you, I, I operate and maneuver under the radar. I don't share typically my goals with anybody. I, they, they see it after it's been accomplished. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that, Tony? I, I just kind of keep it quiet because people will feed negatively into you about what you can and cannot do. And like he said, I do not want to be put in the box. When I was when people say, well, you know, everyone tries to qualify Boston, but it's hard to do. And it's hard for a person who thinks they're a distance runner to run fast at a Boston marathon to qualify. I've qualified Boston five times. <laughs> but, 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 you know, when I set out to do it, I think Tony knew and my cousin, I told no one else. I, kept my, I, keep, I keep it wrapped tight because, like he said, people will feed into you negatively and you have to free your mind. Mm-hmm. You have to free and know what you can do and just do what you know you can do. Yeah. Now, in the documentary, you both mentioned different health reasons behind making distance running part of your lives. Lisa, talk about that with us. What was it that motivated you that is related to health? Okay, I was active duty, and I was 30 years old when I had my daughter, my first and only child. And I was outside the height and weight standards for the Marine Corps. And so when I decided to start doing something over, let's say, six miles, five or six miles, it was initially to lose weight. I had to get back within the height and um, weight standards of the military. And running is one of those things you can do at any time of the day. You know, it doesn't require anything but a nice pair of running shoes and a little bit of an opportunity. And then on top of that, my family, we have so many generational curses as far as health-wise, you know, everything from diabetes to high blood pressure, you name it, we have it. And and most of them are medications. And so my thing is I don't want to be medicated. It kind of, I think, Tony's the same way. I don't want to fall into that trap of being uh, on pharmaceuticals the rest of my life to sustain my life. And I want to thrive in my life. And so that, and then on the, the last part that keeps me going is I have you know, anxiety due to depression. And so running helps me manage and navigate my anxiety and my depression. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's trifold for me. Yeah. You know, it helps maintain your weight and your bat, your weight and your height, weight and standards. It helps you maintain mental, you know, and emotional stability too. Tony, how about you? Yeah, so when I was about eight years old, I went to uh, Camp Wyman there in Eureka, Missouri. And while I was there, uh, they found out that I was pre-diabetic. And the doctor said I would go on insulin by the time I was a teenager. And uh, every year after that, I was tested to determine whether or not I would have to go on insulin. So for me, that was really scary because uh, the thought of having to inject myself every day was not something I exactly looked forward to. In high school, we had to participate in sports two out of the three seasons, and that third season we had to take PE. So I ended up losing weight in high school and did not have to go on insulin. During that same time period, I was working at McQuarrie's Barbecue Restaurant there in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And over the course of several years, I saw the cook lose his eye due to glaucoma. Then he had his toes amputated his leg amputated, and ultimately lost his life, all due to complications with diabetes. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think Bill was even 50 years old. And so that really scared me. In college there at Washington University, I took a PE course, and we read the book 
aerobics and later new aerobics by Dr. Kenneth Cooper, where there was one paragraph in the book that said diabetics who are dependent on insulin may be able to decrease their insulin intake or go completely off of it if they maintain a fitness program. So in 1976, I set a lifetime goal of averaging three miles a day of what I would say running, walking, and crawling. And I've kept a handwritten journal since 1979. Uh, Last month, while I was in Berlin, Germany, I recorded mile number 50,000. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I am 68. I averaged exactly three miles a day since 1979, and I'm still not on insulin. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say the money that I would have spent on insulin, as well as having to manage the side effects of taking insulin and things for high blood pressure and hypertension, I was able to use that money to essentially travel around the world. Mm -hmm. I am really amazed by the the determination that each of you have had to do what you're doing. What is it that keeps you going with running after you have covered so many miles? Uh, interestingly enough for me, when, when running marathons is that a lot of times people don't expect me to finish. Right. And when I was down in Antarctica, I was the only black person in the entire race. And I realized that if if I didn't finish, all someone had to do was say that black guy didn't finish. Mm -hmm. If a white person didn't finish and they said, well, Bob, Joe, Mary, Sue, or Bill didn't finish, you may not know who they are. So being the only black in a race puts additional pressure on you. Mm-hmm. Lisa, and, have you... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and, and I was going to say, and when running the marathon in Antarctica, realizing that only two other blacks had ever run the marathon down there, I felt that if I had failed, then other blacks who, were, who knew that I was down there would have decided that they were not going to try to pursue Southern Continent. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Lisa, you had mentioned how it's possible that black people avoid running in the forest has to do with black Americans' history running in the woods. And we were kind of laughing about that together, but that's a, a very serious consideration. And we have talked with another black St. Louisan who is big on running, um, Ricky Hughes. And something that he talked about was wearing neon running gear so that when he is running in an urban setting, people know when they look at him that he is running for sport. There's also this thing, you know, about East African runners and that there's such great distance runners among them. Do you think that some of this very specific American history has something to do with why we see more East African distance runners than black American distance runners? I believe it could be that. Um, I've been in Africa. I was stationed in Africa for almost for almost a year. And they run 
we see them running for sport, but they just run, period. Like, they, they really, they just run. That's, they don't drive cars. They run on the road. They just run. They're mm-hmm. runners, and they do it subconsciously. It's like, like it's, like a, it's not a thing. I think it may be a thing now where they know that I can get paid to do it, but I think everybody just grow up knowing that you're going to run. But I do believe because, like Tony said, of slavery, because of that, that has third, fourth level effects that carried on for, it's been hundreds of years, but still, some things you don't forget. I just was stopped, what, last week in my neighborhood running, I was stopped by the police twice. With bright lights, I'm, I'm running, I'm, I have a headlight, I got all my gear on, and they and they stopped me in my own neighborhood. And this is Virginia that, Beach. This was, I'm in Suffolk, Suffolk, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, I'm like an hour from Virginia Beach, maybe. And yeah, they stopped me and they said people were, some two houses reported somebody going through their backyard. I'm like, I can guarantee you it wasn't me. Have you seen anybody else out here? Mm, just me, myself and I, I've been out here running now for, cause you know, I run at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I do this all the time. And I live, I don't live, I didn't tell them where I live. It's none of their business. But I'm like, I've been out here running, but I'm not in anybody's yard. Right. No one. And so, I, and I've been stopped here more than one time. And, and But because of that, I purposefully put an app on my phone where when I start running, there's six people who will get notified. They'll know my route. They'll know what time I start. And they'll know where I, when time I finish. And if I get if I stop for more than five minutes, they'll get notified because it happened, and they call me right away. Hey, this says you're not running. Are you okay? Because people will still you, you just don't know, you know. And this is the police. I'm afraid of not even common people. Mm-hmm. This is the police, right, Tony? And, and, and go ahead. Oh no, no, please, please finish. I wanted to say one more thing. I think that's the reason why black people don't run, and I think it's the reason why black people don't swim. My mom would not get in the water. She was taught not to get in the water. Where? How did we get to this country? In a boat, in the water. I'm just going to leave it at that. Go yeah. ahead, Tony. Yeah. And like I said, one of the things that uh, we talked about in the past is just as uh, uh, slaves were told not to run, and we shouldn't run far, we were often kind of told the same thing about swimming. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you think about it, if, if the slaves knew that they could run for and they could run and that they could swim. Now you're talking about swimming across rivers and lakes and what have you to get to freedom. That is not a barrier anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a little wet for practice, don't you think? Don't the girls have schoolwork to do? They do their homework. Tundi's first in her class. Lynn and Isha are too. That's right. Girls, spell civilization. C-I-V-I-L-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N. Okay, Mr. Williams, this is really not necessary. Hold on. You want to check on the kids? Let's check on the kids. We got future doctors and lawyers, plus a couple tennis stars in this house. In an effort to stay competitive in some sports, historically black colleges and universities are diversifying their rosters. Some say that means moving away from the reason these schools were founded to give African-American students an option for higher education. Julianne Virgin with member station WABE in Atlanta reports on the effect of international recruiting on HBCU tennis teams. The thud of rackets striking fluorescent yellow-green balls echoed throughout a tennis center near Atlanta during the HBCU National Championship in September. 
17 historically black colleges and university tennis teams are competing in men's and women's singles and doubles, vying to become a national champion. But many of the players here are not African-American. I always wanted to play in the U.S. because I wanted like a scholarship and be able to be in a university here. Alejandra Hidalgo Vega is a sophomore at North Carolina Central University. Born and raised in Madrid, Spain, she began playing tennis at the age of six. Now she's on a full scholarship. I really enjoy being at HBCU. I have a lot of fun. Vega says she paid a Madrid-based recruiting service to help her land a full scholarship to an American university. Scouting athletes through third-party international sports recruiters has become a big practice in the U.S., including HBCUs. That's according to Dr. Ashley Brown Greer, who studies internationalization at historically black colleges. For HBCUs, that works two ways because now we're able to retain uh, top student athletic talent, and we're also able to diversify our student bodies. 20 years ago, just under 6,000 international student athletes were competing at U.S. institutions. 20 years later, that number has more than tripled, including at HBCUs. This recruitment trend does not sit well with coaches who believe in the original mission of HBCUs to educate black Americans. We feel that there's a lot of black students that need the opportunity to go to college and play tennis. That's Gregory Green, head tennis coach at Tuskegee University. His recruiting philosophy is simple. Give black students a chance. Those are the ones we recruit and uh, we want to keep it home. This is HBCU and we're going to stick to that all the way through. Studies show tennis in the U.S. is diversifying. Nearly 10% of tennis players in this country are African-American. And for the first time ever, four black American players reached the quarterfinals of this year's U.S. Open. But there needs to be more talent growth, says coach Anouk Christans, who leads the tennis program at Alabama State University. Tennis is an international sport. I would love to see more... Uh... African-Americans playing tennis and get to a level where they can play college tennis at the highest level. All seven players on ASU's roster are international students, most from European countries. But Christian says he is starting to see talented African-American players. But they need to go to the next three, four levels so that they can be in par with everyone else. Christian's international recruiting has won the school six national championships. As the landscape for collegiate athletics continues to evolve, including players getting paid for their name, image, and likeness, athletic departments at HBCUs will have to find a way to balance winning at their sports with the reason why the universities were created in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Julian Virgin in Atlanta. Now, dealing with increasing migration and asylum seekers is a critical issue for some European governments. Here in the UK, the government has suffered a major setback in the way it wants to deal with asylum seekers. The Supreme Court here in London has ruled as unlawful the policy of sending some migrants to a third country, Rwanda, while their applications are processed. The human rights lawyer Geoffrey Robertson welcomed the ruling. It's a great vindication 
the rule of law and indeed the rule of British law, even though we may express it in French. Refoulement is a French word. It's perhaps British people can pronounce it refoulement because it is foul. It's sending people who escaped from death and torture back to the country where they'd be killed and tortured. Geoffrey Robertson there, who, for the record, once served as a minister in government under the current Labour opposition. Well, our political correspondent Rob Watson told me what this all means. The Rwanda policy was the idea that people who had arrived in, in Britain on boats, uh, that they would be sent to Rwanda where they would make asylum claims there. In other words, say, look, we, we are legitimately refugees. So that, that's the sort of nub of it. And interestingly, what, what the court has, has sort of said is not, is not that the sort of principle of outsourcing asylum claims to third countries uh, is illegal, but they've sort of said that Rwanda in particular has a problem because you couldn't really be sure that they had the sort of resources or the sort of setup to do it properly. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's a significant knock, isn't it, for the ruling Conservative uh, Party and, and the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. This is a, one of his key five pledges, is it, in a year uh, ahead when there's probably going to be a general election here? You know, absolutely, Robin. I mean, at the start of this year, he said one of the things he was going to do is to stop the boats. And now, clearly, that is in tatters in the sense that it's clearly not going to be any deportations before the end of the year. And really why this matters is that opinion polling suggests that for people who vote Conservative in 2019, people who voted Brexit in 2016, this is something they feel really, really passionately about. But, I mean, interestingly, Robin, it's not as if uh, Mr Sunak is saying, all right, hands up, this has all gone horribly wrong. He's, he's sort of doubling down saying, look, what we're going to do is we're going to try and improve Rwanda's capacity to process asylum seekers but he's also sort of threatened if you like to press the, the sort of nuclear button and that's to say, well, you know, if Britain absolutely had to ignore United Nations and European court conventions uh, well, maybe, maybe it would. All right, so, I mean, he's been speaking in the last hour or so in the, uh, the House of uh, Commons uh, in, in Parliament. How significant is this policy for him as a leader and, and for his party and in terms of their legitimacy, their credibility? Well, it's hugely significant because he did make this a pledge. He was incredibly bold about it. As it turns out, it seems rather unwise to, to be so bold. And it's something that many Conservative MPs feel immensely passionately about, particularly those on the right of the party. And now clearly they are set to disappoint their voters, uh, at least in the short term. And just quickly, we've touched on this before. It's also being watched by others in other European capitals, isn't it? It is, because uh, Britain is not the only country to think about outsourcing the processing of asylum seekers to third countries. And this, you know, this doesn't mean that that can't be done. It just means that any country who was thinking about doing it uh, would need to make sure that they picked a country that their courts uh, would think was safe. And in this case, the British court has decided uh, that Rwanda isn't safe on the basis of UN evidence. Rob Watson, reporting. There'll be poll workers, you know, work side by side. And all of us working together, we can get it done. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did start off with, but then they got attitude. Hmm. They know we're going to take it all. <laughs> you know, we ain't going to leave you nothing. Right? <laughs> Indians said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and 
say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I need to. I think I, what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping, Chief. <laughs> that's all it was. Chief said, there's plenty of land here for everybody. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> Give you a bottle of whiskey. That's what you're going to get out of the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. Alejandro Pilar Vasquez, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, Ida Beard. Those are just three names on a list that the Bureau of Indian Affairs says extends to 4,200 unsolved cases of missing and murdered people. Tamara Truitt-Jeru is the executive director of Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. We can't wait anymore. This is urgent. Alaska Native and American Indian people in particular, they're not the ones we're seeing up, you know, on the billboards unless the family's paying for it. It's a very sad testament to how we treat our Indigenous people in this country. Truett Giroux is also on the Not Invisible Act Commission, which created a 200-page report from the accounts they heard from families. It was heartbreaking. I mean, even though a person disappears, they're still part of your heart and people want answers. And the systems aren't in place to assist, especially family members, um, to answer those horrifying questions. And so your heart and brain just continually runs a scenario that is never a positive outcome. Mm. Had anybody really listened before? I think that's a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the hope that the commission would have some impact on the things that were creating roadblocks for answers or helping to prevent it altogether, that was a huge piece of why people stepped forward and wanted to be heard. Many people talked about the lack of being heard by law enforcement. So trying to find ways for those types of agencies to communicate with families ongoing is important. What is or who is responsible for such a high number of unsolved killings and reports of missing persons in Indigenous communities? Well, that's a pretty big answer. There's huge jurisdictional pieces that create a myriad of responders. So who is taking responsibility if the person that you love was last seen in a jurisdiction that uh, is not a tribal jurisdiction Mm -hmm. or in Alaska where the Alaska state troopers are responsible for investigating, but they have a hundred other communities they're working with. The other end of that is these misconceptions that you have to wait 24 hours to report someone missing. And everywhere we went, law enforcement said, that is not true. You do not have to wait 24 hours. 
or when someone reported a missing person and they just would make comments like, well, maybe they ran away Hmm. or they're off partying or whatever that response is, but not taking the reports of missing persons seriously. I mean, I can see that the findings, first of all, there's no blanket answer in your recommendations, but a lot of them also seem to say law enforcement needs to take them seriously. There needs to be access to law enforcement. Families need to be heard. I mean, why isn't that happening already? Good question. Why isn't it happening already? Absolutely. Law enforcement needs to change their procedure and their attitude, but there's a lot of work to do. Families need to be heard, and they need to be heard and responded to in a way that they may have information that isn't being taken seriously to help in the investigation. Having this report out in the world for loved ones of these thousands of missing and murdered people, does it give them solace? My hope is yes. At least they can see that we really seriously heard them. And we want others to hear you so that we don't have to be begging, just begging for some help to find their loved one. Tamara Truitt-Giroux directs the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She's also a member of the Not Invisible Act Commission. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation... uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Parents of children at West Middle School in Cherry Creek are demanding accountability and transparency after a video circulated among the students at the school. It's a disturbing video in which a student is heard saying racial slurs. Uh, The district says it investigated and the student faced significant discipline. The Rocky Mountain NAACP and parents both spoke yesterday and say the district didn't do enough Mm -hmm. to warn them of the severity of the situation. Denver 7 reporter and attorney Jessica Crawford spoke to parents about their concerns. Black are little collar kickers. We should not be alive right now. I hate their skin color. I hate how they talk. This video by a West Middle School student in Cherry Creek Schools has parents and the Rocky Mountain NAACP outraged. It is a community and a safety issue. We want to make sure that we keep that on the forefront. Wednesday, the Rocky Mountain NAACP held a news conference in front of the school to address the video. According to Cherry Creek Schools, the district was made aware of the video in September. The district says it was, quote, created outside of school by a West Middle School student and shared in a group text. The district claims it took swift action to address the student's behavior and, quote, students found to be responsible face significant discipline. Still, certain parents and and the Rocky Mountain NAACP say they're concerned that the student still attends the school, even though his video about black people said, quote, they should not be alive right now. How do we know there's not a firearm in that house so 
other parents can let their children come to school and feel safe. It's the racist manifesto. My initial reaction when I saw the video was, is the next step I'm going to hear about a mass shooting. Because it seemed like a preamble to someone that would mass shoot up, shoot up a school. This West Middle School parent agreed to speak with us if their face was covered and their voice was changed. They fear retaliation. That's not hate speech. That's hate speech plus death threat. The parent takes issue with the letter the district sent home after the incident in September. The letter stated, quote, in recent days we have dealt with some incidents of racist speech at our school and in our community. This parent believes the district left out way too many details. I feel like parents need to know what's happening. They don't know. This parent says the video is just one part of the racism that students deal with at West Middle School. The parent tells me some students sell laminated passes that other students can purchase. A student with the so-called N-word pass can use that pass as an excuse to call another student that racial slur. They're called the N-word and then when the kid looks in shock, the person whips out the pass. Overall, this parent says the environment at the school sends this message. I know the message you're sending to my child is that you're not important, is that you're less than. And middle school is when you develop your identity. Well, the school district has not told us what discipline the student in the video faced. We did hear, though, that there are other parents interested in sharing their stories, and we will continue to follow up on this. During that same time period, I was working at McQuarrie's Barbecue Restaurant there in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And over the course of several years, I saw the cook lose his eye due to glaucoma. Then he had his toes amputated, his leg amputated, and ultimately lost his life, all due to complications with diabetes. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think Bill was even 50 years old. Today is Children's Day. But 14th November is also significant for another reason. Before I tell you what it is, let me ask you a question. Do you know what the following have in common? Kamal Hassan, Rekha, Sonam Kapoor, Samantha Ruth Prabhu, Anil Kumble, Vaseem Akram, and Nick Jonas. They're all living with diabetes. As are 422 million people worldwide. So 14th November is also observed as World Diabetes Day to raise awareness about a disease that has often been dubbed the silent killer. Why the silent killer? Because of its prevalence of remaining undetected. World Diabetes Day was created in 1991. 14th November is also the birthday of Sir Frederick Banting. Banting discovered insulin along with Charles Best in the year 1922. And speaking of insulin, Brace yourself for a quick science lesson, especially for those who did not pay enough attention in school. What is diabetes? It's a chronic disease, often running in families. It happens when your blood glucose, also called blood sugar, is too high. Most of the food we eat is broken down by our body into sugar or glucose. It is then released into our bloodstream. When your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas release the hormone insulin. Now, this insulin is very important. It lets your blood sugar into your body's cells, which is then used for energy. But when you have diabetes, your body does not make enough insulin. It's called type 1 diabetes. Then there's type 2. That's when your body is unable to use the insulin properly. This is the most common type of diabetes, type 2. 
And this is what it leads to. Too much sugar stays in your bloodstream. In the long run, it leads to serious health problems, most commonly affecting your kidney, heart, and eyesight. And despite the giant leaps made by medical science, no cure has been found yet. Type 1 diabetes is not preventable, but type 2 is through a healthy diet and regular exercise. If you quit smoking, you reduce the risk of diabetes by 40%. It is now a ubiquitous health problem, also called the biggest epidemic of the 21st century. Here's how common it is. One in 10 adults worldwide have diabetes. More than 90% have type 2 diabetes. Close to half are not yet diagnosed. More than two in three people with diabetes already have complications at the time of diagnosis. By 2040, it is estimated that more than half a billion people will have diabetes. So the picture is not pretty and it's particularly grim here in India. India is called the diabetes capital of the world. This is what a recent study revealed. More than 100 million people in the country are living with diabetes. That's more than 11% of our population. Another 136 million are in the pre-diabetes stage. More than 60% of people with pre-diabetes usually end up with diabetes within five years. Another major concern is this. A large number of children are affected by it. A study was done in Chennai and Delhi. It has found a link between type 2 diabetes and air pollution. So that increases the risk given how high our pollution levels are. Plus, South Asians in general have greater insulin resistance. This makes us more prone to diabetes than Caucasians. The only good news, if you can call it that, is this. Most people with type 2 diabetes have type 2 diabetes, and that is preventable. Adopting a healthy lifestyle significantly reduces your risks. Keep your body weight in check, quit smoking, eat healthy. These are simple steps. They'll go a long way in battling this silent killer. Living with diabetes is a reality for many of us, but we still have a choice. We can choose what impact this insidious disease has on our lives. Wow, president of Laramie Cigarettes, Jack Larson. This year, Laramie is sponsoring the Little Miss Springfield pageant. You see, government regulations prohibit us from advertising on TV. <sighs> ah, that sweet Carolina smoke. But they can't prohibit us from holding a beauty pageant for little girls age seven to nine. <laughs> High schoolers are ditching the vapes. That's according to a new CDC study. Just 10% of high schoolers report using vapes. That's down from 14% last year. But the same can't be said for a, the younger group of kids. The study showed that middle school students reported a rise in overall tobacco use, reaching more than 6% in 2023. The results show that there is still a lot more work to do to curb the appeal of flavored nicotine among kids. So for more on this, I want to bring in Dr. Deborah Howery. She is the chief medical officer from the CDC. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So high schoolers are using less tobacco products. Uh, why is that? And why are middle school kids taking to it? It doesn't, it would strike me that if you decide to start smoking, oftentimes with children, it starts because there's somebody that you think is cool, either a parent or a public figure that is smoking. That is the appeal. So why are middle school kids using it? 
So, you know, a few things about this, and I think, you know, as a mom of a young high school student, this certainly um, worries me overall. Even though we have seen a decrease in high school students, it's still 10% of high school students that smoked in the past 30 days, and about 2.8 million overall middle school and high schoolers. You're right. You know, we have seen an increase in middle school kids. It's still less than the high school kids overall. And for me, it's a trend. We need to see what happens over the next year or two. When you look at what's being marketed to kids, though, it's things like, you know, flavors that are um, really marketed towards kids like cotton candy or bubble gum. And that's really concerning as a parent and doctor and as a public health professional. This is being marketed towards our kids. And that's why we're seeing that there's more um, interest in kids in things like e-cigarettes. So I have a couple of questions. And I think people should understand when we talk about tobacco products, we are talking about vaping and regular cigarettes, the old-timey cigarettes, I guess, uh, all kind of lumped together. You talked about these products being marketed towards kids. I thought there was this sort of big hullabaloo about vaping products and the flavors and, uh, and I, you know, the CDC cracking down on flavors and the marketing. Is that still happening, that we have vaping products that are being marketed towards kids? So the FDA is working on regulations around a lot of these new products, but you can still find them on the market and you can still see them to where they might be in reach of kids, to where kids can see them. And what I would say is this is why it's so important to talk to your to your kid um, or if you're a doctor to talk to, you know, your pediatric patient, because parents might talk to their kids about cigarettes, but you're but may not talk about things like e-cigarettes or vaping. And that's all part of it. And when you think about the impact on the developing brain and nicotine dependence, we have have to make sure that we're having these conversations with our kids. Uh, so uh, you talked about the fact that they may still be within reach uh, or some of the marketing may still seemingly target kids. So are you saying that these brands aren't following the rules? So FDA is who's in charge of really enforcing these regulations. And many of these companies have to apply, share data, and there's different standards. So some of these products can still be available. Others may be um, uh, newer products or um, also being, um, you know, developed. Uh, so what I would say is for me, it's just about the overall focus on e-cigarettes, mm -hmm. cigarettes, and making sure that our kids are safe. We know that those products are out there. And we also know that for kids, they're going to look to their peers. They're going to look to their parents. They're going to look to their doctors. So the more that we can address all those different fronts on why it's important, including they're young and they have a developing brain and we want them to be successful and thrive in adulthood. And if they're using nicotine containing products, it's gonna impact their developing brain. And uh, can we talk a little bit about those vaping products and the fact that the nicotine that's in them or the, pro or the delivery process makes, the, makes it much more addictive than even a regular cigarette and which makes it super concerning when we're talking about a middle schooler. Um, if adults find it hard to break the habit, I can't imagine what a kid, how hard it is for a kid. So a few things about that. And one is this study showed that if you use these products a few times a month, you are likely to show some signs of nicotine dependence. So you might think just a couple times a month is not too many, but it is too many if your body is already starting to get dependent on it. And we also know that if you are using nicotine products as a youth, um, you are more likely to have long-term nicotine addiction and may become addicted to other drugs as well. So the question is, what can parents and teachers do to help? One, 
talk to your kids. Make sure that they are aware that um, just because something, you know, sounds fun or flavorful doesn't mean that it's safe or okay, that it's still just as dangerous as other products. And there's a 1-800-QUIT-NOW tip line, you know, that you can refer your kid to. And we also are working with pediatricians through the American Academy of Pediatricians to help them learn how to screen um, their patients for it. And then educators are so important as well. We have an Empower Vape Free Youth campaign that helps educators with how to talk with their students about it. Most important thing is have those conversations at home with your kids. All right, Dr. Deborah Howery, thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a great morning. You too. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. For more than a quarter century, the Morehouse School of Medicine has held a conference named for Henrietta Lacks. She was a young black mother who died in 1951 and whose cells were harvested without permission. Her story was told in the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, but a lesser-known figure in that history is a black oncologist who was pivotal in bringing Lacks's contribution to light. NPR's Walter Ray Watson has this remembrance. Before there was a best-selling book, a movie or conferences, there was Dr. Roland Patillo. He was the first person to utter the phrase, thank you, Henrietta. That's Rebecca Sklut, author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And he was also the first person to ever say, I'm sorry for your suffering to members of her family. He was the first person to recognize that they were suffering. Since the 1960s, Dr. Patillo treated patients and worked in labs. George Guy mentored him at Johns Hopkins. Guy was the biologist who cultivated Lax's cells in 1951. From Guy, Patillo learned deeply about HeLa, the first successful human cell line to grow outside the body. Patillo became a kind of gatekeeper to the Lax family. When Rebecca Sklut reached him about writing her book, I thought I was writing a book about Henrietta and the cells. He grilled the writer. Over several phone calls, they talked about health disparities, race in America, and what the Lax family had endured. She got homework. Once cleared to meet the daughter, Deborah, Sklut geared up to write a far more complicated story, largely because of Patillo. The book was a bestseller in 2010. An HBO movie in 2017 starred Oprah Winfrey as Deborah Lacks and Rose Byrne as Rebecca Sklut. When I finish this, do you want me to send it to you or do you want me to come down and read it? Only certain parts. Been thinking about going back to school. Dr. Patillo has really kept the story of the Henrietta Lacks HeLa cell alive. Dr. Daniel Ford runs the Institute of Clinical and Translational Research at Johns Hopkins. After learning about the book's release, they launched the Henrietta Lacks Memorial Lecture Series. It was an opportunity for outreach. They took it. The Lacks family was welcomed, scholarships awarded. Rebecca Sklut was guest speaker and Ford invited Dr. Roland Patillo as well. I really struck up a long-term friendship with him. He has come to every symposium he could until COVID made us virtual, and even then he participated. Roland Patillo started a forum in honor of Lax many years before Hopkins. The Gila Women's Health Symposium at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta was likely the first to raise awareness of the Lax story and spotlight research and health disparities. It turned 25 last year. Dr. Cheryl Franklin is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Morehouse School. He was just a gentle giant in the truest sense of those words. Franklin, like many of her colleagues, remembers Patillo as a mentor 
whose empathy was always on display with patients, faculty, and students. Helicells are instrumental in the development of countless medical breakthroughs, from a vaccine for polio to most recently playing a role fighting COVID-19. Dr. Patillo pushed for gratitude for lax, but he did more. Pat O'Flynn Patillo was married to her husband for 27 years. Speaking from her suburban Atlanta home, she says he worked with the Gila cell line, but started two more in his career. Dr. Patillo always talked about his JAR, J-A-R, cell line, and also his Caskey cell line. The Caskey cell line, like the Gila cell line, contributed to the human papillomavirus vaccine in use today. Pat Patillo marvels at all that he did and recalls her husband's struggle with the illness that claimed his life last May at 89. I think only as I have seen him with Parkinson's and seeing him locked in the disease when his mind was still so clear and so brilliant and so ready still to work. Last week, the 26th annual Gila Symposium was held in Atlanta. Behind every person is someone else pushing them along. The first without Dr. Roland Patillo. Walter Ray Watson, NPR News. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Tennessee Republican lawmaker Tim Burchett says Kevin McCarthy elbowed him in the kidneys in retaliation for voting to oust him as Speaker of the House. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, you're pathetic, man. The altercation came on the same day this past Tuesday that a Senate hearing nearly turned into a brawl when Senator Mark Wayne Mullen challenged the president of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien, to a fight. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution? Every no, no, sit down, please. That's Senator Bernie Sanders trying to de-escalate the situation. And at a House Oversight Committee the same day, Republican Chairman James Comer of Kentucky clashed with Representative Jared Moskowitz of Florida at a hearing belittling his blue suit. You look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen. Mr. Chairman, you no, have... No, you, no, no, hold, hold on. If we're, you can, if we're passion not. spilling into violence are nothing new on Capitol Hill. Yale historian Joanne Freeman has documented more than 70 cases of fisticuffs, stabbings, and duels between hot-tempered lawmakers. She wrote about them in her book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War. Joanne, so your book covers a 30-year period leading up to the Civil War. Do you see any similarities to today, and, and what lessons lessons, if any, can be drawn from all that? Well, certainly um, there are a lot of similarities, which is not to say that we're on the brink of civil war, but the idea that not only are we polarized, but that one side, certainly in Congress, that the right at this particular moment seems to have embraced a rhetoric of violence, appears to be willing to do whatever they need to do to get what they want at this moment, are not really abiding by some of the rules and norms of Congress. And certainly what you saw in Congress in the 1850s was Southerners who were operating under the same principle. They were going to do whatever it required to get what they wanted, and they certainly were not willing to talk it seems comical in some ways, but, you know, it also represents 
kind of a scorning of some of the pretty basic components of how a democratic legislature should work. Now, the period leading up to the Civil War was a very polarizing time in America that included the infamous Brooks-Sumner Affair. Can you remind us what happened with the Brooks-Sumner Affair? Sure. Charles Sumner was an abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, and he gave a very assertive anti-slavery speech in the Senate. And Preston Brooks of South Carolina was offended by it as a slaveholder uh, and violently caned Charles Sumner to the ground. And it certainly, as you suggested at the outset, wasn't the first instance of violence in Congress, but it was a particularly dramatic one coming as it did in 1856. By that point, it was getting very close to the really eruption of the fact that there was absolutely no way for anyone to even talk about slavery in Congress. When these fights happen, these congressional fights, who started them? Who's tended to start these uh, congressional fights more frequently? More often than not, it was actually Southerners. Um, and not surprisingly, a lot of them had something to do with slavery. The South, Southerners in Congress, tended to anyone who threatened the institution of slavery, they would use threats of violence, uh, they have threats of dual challenges. In one way or another, they would try to intimidate Northerners into silence or compliance on the issue of slavery. Uh, and for a time, it worked quite well. There were people who wouldn't stand up and confront a Southerner, knowing that this is what was waiting for them on the other end. You can see in the record and you can see in people's diaries and private letters, people explicitly saying that they would rather not talk than have to stand up and face that kind of threat. Joanne, why do you think we don't learn from history? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Well, I, I mean, I think in part, there's a belief among a lot of people that, you know, the United States will always be okay, that we're exceptional in some way, that whatever is happening now is not serious, everything will be fine, and perhaps it will be, and I certainly hope so. Um, but I think that generally speaking, speaking as a historian, that's not a smart way to proceed. I think you have to keep your eyes open, and I think knowing history and being aware of history and being willing to say, okay, this happened in the past, history doesn't repeat, but as you just suggested, we can learn from it. We have to learn from it, and we need to get past the idea that somehow what's happening in the present doesn't count because bad things don't happen to the United States. Sometimes they do, and to avoid them, we need to be aware of how we got to where we are, how things have worked in the past, and what we can do in the present to avoid bad things in the future. That's Yale historian Joanne Freeman. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. In a recent campaign speech, Donald Trump used terms that echoed the language of Adolf Hitler. But that parallel is not the only reason to pay attention. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben has this analysis. Last weekend, Trump compared his political opponents to vermin. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. He praised Hungary's strongman leader. The head of Hungary, a very tough, strong guy, Viktor Orban. 
and he referred to himself as... I'm a very proud election denier. All of which has renewed the conversation over Trump as authoritarian. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history at NYU and author of the book Strongman. She defined authoritarianism. It's when the executive branch and the leader find ways to take away checks and balances so they have a degree of power that they don't have in a democracy. She points to a New York Times report that Trump is looking for potential appointees who will not stymie his attempts at greater executive power. Authoritarianism, in fact, has been found to be key to Trump's political success. In a 2016 study, belief in authoritarian ideas was the greatest predictor of support for Trump in that Republican primary. And even in America's heretofore stable democracy, authoritarianism is relatively popular. That study's author later found that around 4 in 10 Americans have authoritarian preferences. Robert Jones is the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, or PRRI. What we have witnessed from Trump over the last few weeks is something new. Trump has clearly crossed into the domain of Nazi ideology. Jones also pointed to a recent interview with the far-right website The National Pulse, in which Trump made this statement about immigration. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, It's poisoning the blood of our country. The Trump campaign firmly denies any connection to Nazi rhetoric. In a statement, spokesman Stephen Chung told NPR, quote, Everything President Trump is saying is true. It's honestly despicable and racist for any news organization to make disgusting connections as they have done in the past few days. He added, There has been no bigger ally to Israel and the Jewish people than President Trump. Though Trump's language echoes language Hitler used, many people listening might not draw that connection. But Jones argues that's not the point. This language of rooting out vermin, the reason why authoritarian leaders use that is because it does dehumanize their political opponents. Dehumanization of political opponents are the bricks that pave the road to political violence. PRRI recently found that 23 percent of voters, including one third of Republicans, agreed that, quote, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. That poll also found that 38 percent of Americans, including nearly half of Republicans, agree that the U.S. needs a leader who, quote, is willing to break some rules if that is what it takes to set things right. Jones sees this as a clear indication of authoritarian sentiment. Othering an entire group, whether it's immigrants or political opponents, is powerful for authoritarians, says Ben Ghiat. You need to get people to feel they have an existential threat facing them. And the more they feel uncertain and fearful, the more the strongman can appear and say, I alone can fix it. And that's something Americans have heard before. I alone can fix it. When Trump first accepted the Republican nomination in 2016. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches, not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. 
Two black churches in Fayetteville have been the targets of hate-related incidents during the past week. One with graffiti so vulgar we had to blur out most all of it here. The other church was subjected to a bomb threat just before service was about to begin. WREL's Fayetteville reporter Gilbert Bays spoke with a pastor who has some very serious security concerns. Well, this is Unity Tabernacle Christian Church here on Gillespie Street. The graffiti is on the other wall, and whoever did this didn't care that it's right across the street from the Cumberland County Detention Center. This is an attack on the body of Christ. Cordelia Challenger has been pastor of Greater Unity Tabernacle Christian Church for the past 24 years. On Thursday, she received a call from a church member who told her someone had sprayed graffiti outside on the church wall. The word Hamas, the letters KKK, the N-word, most of it too graphic to show on TV. This is one time I do not think it had anything at all to do with race. I, I really believe that it had to do with Israel and Hamas and, and those kind of things. And um, we have to pray. A second incident involving a black church in Fayetteville happened Sunday morning. We're told a bomb threat was called into Simon Temple AME Zion Church on Yakin Road. Bomb-sniffing dogs from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office didn't find anything. The pastor didn't want to talk about the incident. He says his church is ready to move on. And pastor Challenger has security concerns. Many of our smaller congregations, as myself, um, we don't have the security that many larger congregations have. If you could look into the eyes of the person who did that right now, what would you say? Jesus loves you. God loves you. And I have to love you. So as you can see, they've cleaned up most of the graffiti, but they still don't have a suspect. Anyone with information is asked to contact Fayetteville Police. In Fayetteville, Gilbert Bays, WREL News. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly, running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. Calls getting louder tonight for the Justice Department to investigate the death of a Mississippi man run over by a local police car. His family saying they were kept in the dark for months about his whereabouts while they thought he was only missing. Dexter Wade's family says a federal investigation is needed now more than ever after his body was exhumed from a pauper's field this morning at the request of the family, but hours before they were told it would happen, meaning no one but the public works crews were there to witness this. Dexter's mother voicing her frustration earlier today. Listen. Now y'all have buried my baby. Y'all have took him out the ground. Y'all put him in the ground without my permission. So I don't have no permission. Now, we've been covering this story on this program since NBC News reporter John Shoopy broke it last month. Dexter Wade was last seen alive by his mother in March as he walked out of the home they shared. He was killed minutes after that as he tried to cross a nearby freeway on foot.
Dexter's mother, though, would spend the next 172 days totally in the dark until police realized they had made, they say, a clerical error in not informing the family. NBC's Blaine Alexander is covering the story for us tonight. Uh, Blaine, talk to us a little bit more about what was supposed to happen with Dexter's body today and then what the family actually experienced instead. Well, Aaron, as you can understand, there is a lot of frustration, a lot of anger from that family tonight, and many would say rightfully so. So what was supposed to happen, and this is according to uh, my colleague, John Shupi, who, as you mentioned, broke this story. He was actually there in Jackson covering everything that's happened. Everything was set for 1130 in the morning. That was the understanding. But he said that when crowds started to arrive there, everything had already happened. So not only uh, was Dexter Wade's mother caught off guard, but the family members, they even had a minister show up there. All of them were completely blindsided by the fact that the exemption had already taken place. Now, I understand that all that Dexter's mother, uh, Betterstein Wade, was able to actually witness was the transfer of his remains from the basically the back of the coroner's vehicle into the hearse. So you can understand why the family says that trust is even further broken here. Here's what attorney Ben Crump, who represents that family, had to say today. Take a look. Imagine if this was your loved one who they killed and then bear it without your permission, and then exhumed them after they told you they were going to respect you this time. Would you trust anybody in Mississippi now? And so there you have him uh, voicing the frustrations on behalf of the family. And, of course, Aaron, they said that they wanted to exhume him to have their own private autopsy and then to have a proper burial and a funeral for him as well. Aaron. Yeah, they, he deserves that for sure, Blaine. I, I do want to ask you, too, I mean, you have, uh, obviously, Attorney Crump there. You have Dexter's family all saying they want to see the DOJ step in here and look into what happened. What might that look like, and has the Department of Justice indicated that this is something that it would look into? Well, the investigation would come from the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. That's who they're asking to come in and really just kind of do a thorough review of this entire situation from beginning to end and take a close look at the Jackson Police Department. I've been speaking with uh, a colleague of Ben Crump's today, and he told me that that request has actually formally been made by other people who are affiliated with this case as well. He said that that request has been out there for the past week or so. So now the question is, of course, will the DOJ take this up? How long will that investigation last if it is, in fact, launched? And, of course, what sort of information will it yield. But you can certainly understand why what happened today is further fueling those calls for the DOJ to come in and investigate. That's what we heard from Dexter Wade's mother, his family members, Ben Crump. All of them are saying this is yet another reason why they need some outside eyes to come in. Aaron. All right, Blaine Alexander with us tonight. Blaine, thank you. But you take even the football players. I mean, you know, the white people know it so much about us that they you know, make restrictions on it about the football game, even though people say it's just a game and all like that. But they are saying, you know, that it sends even a deeper message. It goes to show you how primitive we are. Because the black guy, like I saw a black guy do that, a ball play, I forgot what team he's on. That was this year. I think I may have mentioned it to you before. I mentioned it to somebody. He's running down the field with his weaves and whatnot, I mean, trailing behind him, you know, I mean, uh, struggling to be a man, just so, you know, struggling to be recognized, that's what the weave's all about, mm-hmm. pay attention to me, that's what that is, drop what you're doing and stop what you're doing and look over here and pay attention to me, 
So now when he's carrying a football down the field, and he was making it, he was outrunning everybody. Mm -hmm. And when he got near the end of the goal line, people he could see the people jumping up and down, the ladies in their skirts and whatnot, the pep squad and whatnot, the cheering squad, they jumping up and down. I mean, and, oh, he's grinning and running. And he ran into the end zone and ran out of the end zone, I mean, and jumped right into the crowd up there like we do. But he threw the ball down before he got in the end zone. <laughs> and the people were screaming and yelling, I mean, you idiot and whatnot, and he's still running and grinning because he wasn't aware that he threw the ball down. Mm. And that's the story of black people's lives <laughs> in the modern day since they took the chains off. Too quick wow. to celebrate and haven't done nothing but dropped the ball. In fact, threw it down. <laughs> Concentrating wow. on a celebration more than the accomplishment. And that's the story of our lives. Simpson flushed out to his left. He's going to try to pick it up with his legs. He does and more. Simpson crossing the 50 inside the 35 on his feet. No way. Ty Simpson to the house. A 79-yard touchdown by the backup quarterback, Ty Simpson. Wow. Talk about Simpson not being quite the runner Jalen Milrow is. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he heard that. And this boy can scoot. We knew he's a dual threat quarterback, but about the speed in the open field. Nice job blocking downfield as well by Kendrick Wall, helping him escort him to the end zone. Just don't drop that ball too soon, though, Ty Simpson. We've seen that be an issue this year. 79 yards. That is the longest run of the season for Alabama. Credit to Ty Simpson. I'm telling you, this is what they're looking at. Did he drop that ball too soon? Oh, boy. I saw it. Oh, boy. I saw it. So they go to the replay to see if Ty Simpson did, in fact, score. Take a look, it gets the block downfield, but when does he start to let loose of this ball? Oh, yeah. no. Oh. See, I, oh. I mean, when are players going to learn? When are players going to learn? How many instances, how many times do these shots get put out on Twitter and Instagram of people doing this? What happened last week with Washington, right? It's just, it, it's absolutely insane why you would even, even flirt with that being an issue. And you know that's one of the things that will not make Nick Saban happy. I just, you, you can't understand. It's very simple. Cross the end zone, throw the ball to the referee. I mean, I mean it should just be a habit. If you're an offensive guy, you score a touchdown, you physically hand or toss the ball to the referee. And that's... But it, is there enough evidence to overturn it? That's, that's my it, question. It, it I'm, I'm still not convinced where he dropped this ball. It was ruled a touchdown on the field. 
I mean, right there, that ball's oh. coming out of his hand before the line, but then the ball lands in the end zone. But I, I, I think this is going to be overturned. And okay, so what is Nick Saban telling his? He, he's saying, why would you even after make video this review? Evidence shows that the runner dropped the ball prior to breaking the goal line plane. The fumble occurred inside the one yard line where it rolled dead in the end zone. By rule, the ball will be returned to the one half yard line where it will be first and goal. Nick Saban will not even look at his young quarterback. <laughs> oh, that is one of the greatest. Oh, thank you so much to a listener. I do despise social media, all of it, all of it. But man, that was one constructive use of social media. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy information for non-white people, victims of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 18, 2023. So I have been told our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have observations questions counter racist suggestions the number to dial 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. I am so glad that I... Included this because if I had not, I probably would not have made sure that I took time to also. I mean, hey, everything is not in audio format, video format. Some things you do actually have to read. The New York Times and probably I'm sure other outlets, but I just saw it at the New York Times. We have talked about chronic traumatic encephalopathy enough times that I can pretty much correctly pronounce it, which is stunning, otherwise known as CTE, brain damage. We even started our year before I went to Buffalo. We had Julie Stam, neuroscientist, on the program. Youth sports, it was uh, youth sports and the, or the youth brain and tackle sports. Sports and the youth brain. There we go. In the ballpark. <clears throat> Have to pull the book up. But Julie Stam, neuroscientist, suspected racist she was with us days after damar ham hamlin sorry damar hamlin victim of racism uh, had his almost died literally on the football field playing the cincinnati Bengals. that was this calendar year that is amazing oh can't seem like 50 years ago but that was this calendar year january anyway we talked then she has lots of information in her book the youth brain is developing well into mid-twenties. No alcohol, no cannabis, 
no tackle football. It was a long list and detailed reasons from a neuroscientist as to, no, not even worth the risk, man. We talked about this before and even had pushback like, man, football, you can get scholarships and say scholarships to play tennis, non-contact. I don't remember tennis being mentioned in the book at all because I've never heard of Serena or Venus or Miss Stevens, Naomi Osaka. I've never heard of any of them. The late Arthur Ashe. Never heard any of them got a concussion because someone bopped them upside the head with a tennis ball. I've never heard that. Safe. Protect your brain computer. Go out. Practice your serve. Tackle football. The New York Times had a report this week. Again, we've had folks brought that up. Oh, you know, you have to play a long time. Emmett Smith never had CTE brain damage. Jim Brown, the late, never had brain damage. That all of that is nonsense. It's not possible to play tackle football and avoid brain damage. It's not even possible. New York Times this week, they started playing football as young as six. So that's one, two, three, four, five. They died in their teens and twenties with C T E. The thing that I found really interesting with this, many of the people that they show the victims are classified as white, I think. When I posted the thumbnail online, the picture that they even though they have a lot of video include if you actually look at the article on the New York Times when you post the thumbnail you see pictures it's pictures of white football players most of the football players NFL collegiate level are black and they're poorly informed about concussions talked about that with uh, Dr. Jessica Wallace on the day of the Super Bowl this year I can't believe that Philadelphia and Kansas City are playing again on Monday we just talked about it. I didn't even watch a second of the Super Bowl not even a commercial because we were talking Dr. Wallace about racism and black people being ignorant about concussions black people being overconfident in their knowledge of concussions and being ignorant about concussions. That's what we were talking about while Jalen Hurts was losing the Super Bowl roll tide. I'm going to read a teaspoon of this article just because I'm aware that some people can't break the paywall for the New York Times or they don't have access or don't read or whatever. Wyatt Bramwell began playing tackle football in third grade and became a star in his high school team, but he had a secret. Weeks before he was supposed to start college to study engineering, he recorded a message for his family and friends. His parents shared it with the New York Times. Oh, they have the video right here. This is a white dude. I'm not going to skip through. Moments after making his recording, Wyatt stepped from the car and shot himself in the chest. He had left a final request for his father. 
His parents donated his brain to be researched. The testing confirmed Wyatt's suspicion he had advanced CTE. He was 18 years old. That's what I'm thinking when people say, Emmett Smith didn't have brain damage. Jim Bratt. Are you serious? Are you a doctor? How have you studied? How did you make this conclusion? One and then 18. They said Aaron Hernandez. He committed suicide in his mid-twenties. And they said he had advanced brain damage. Why would I think it would be different for someone who played football well into their thirties when they had even less regard for player safety? Let's see one more. Why it was part of the first major study of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in athletes who died before turning 30. The findings present an uncomfortable truth. I don't know what that is. What is an, is it true? Period. Is it accurate? Period. I don't know what uncomfortable. What are you talking about? Uncomfortable for whom? Uncomfortable truth for other football families. Even the young get CC. I don't even like that. Can't even pronounce encephalopathy. Call it brain damage. That's what it is. Even the young get brain damage. They all died young. Most played football. Only a few came close to reaching the pro. Only a few came close to reaching the pros. I suspect you could even substitute pros for college. Couldn't even get on Coach Prime team. But like hundreds of deceased NFL players, including pro football Hall of Famers like Mike Webster, Junior Seau, and Ken Stabler, they too had CTE, the degenerative brain disease, linked to repeated hits to the head. For now, it can be positively diagnosed only posthumously. The brains of Wyatt and 151 other young contact sports athletes, both men and women, are part of a study recently released by researchers at Boston University. Our Julie Stam, she studied at Boston University and included some of that data in her uh, book that we talked about at the beginning of the year, right after DeMar Hamlin almost died on the field. And this would be a great article. Share, and even, I have to think about that, like if you have young people, you have a lot of black people that play football. It's a lot of white victims of brain damage here. Like, did they test black people? Even that's, if you have anybody, this is the type of thing you, you know, coach football and what have you share. Dr. Wallace was here. You should share that program too. And Dr. Uh, Stam's book. That's who she wrote it for. Black people are ignorant. It was black parents, black coaches, black football players are overconfident about their knowledge of concussions and they are less informed than their white counterparts across the board. That's what we were talking about during the Super Bowl. Dirt off my shoulders. Thank you. And then flew to Buffalo two days later. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway, so 
we started talking about tackle football. I said Neely Fuller Jr. We've talked about that. Used it as a metaphor. No premature celebrations. Replace white supremacy with justice. I pointed that out, I think, last year. I've never seen a tackle football player classified as white voluntarily toss the ball down prior to crossing the plane of the end zone. I've only seen black tackle football players at all levels, high school, college, pro, NFL, whatever, do this. I'm so excited to cut into the funky chicken, the stanky leg. I got to sling the ball down at the five-yard line. Literally, in the clip that you heard today, they said, haven't we seen this enough? Didn't this just happen last week in Washington? You bet your hind parts it did. Literally, 90 minutes before we went live, it was so close, I didn't even see it until we went off the air. A University of Washington football player, I'm looking at the stadium right now, even though we're playing in Oregon. A non-white male did the same thing and he didn't do it close he was at like the three yard line and slung it down doing my thing got to get to celebrate and look at exactly what Fuller said and this was in a close but the University of Washington is undefeated they could be in the national championship playoff and all that millions of dollars could even be billions of dollars at stake in a close ball game and I got to do my celebrating privileged black male look at look 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 for the first time ever I told you someone sent it to me on uh, Twitter at until justice they said should we mark this Ty Simpson University of Alabama that's where Dr. Jennifer Wallace that's where she teaches at about black people being ignorant and overconfident about concussions Jessica Wallace my apologies Dr. Jessica Wallace but roll tide Ty Simpson you know he's gonna get oh my god who's your daddy Ty Simpson out here behaving like a nigra Ty you help your dad hide the knife old Ty Simpson backup quarterback at the University of Alabama white man 79 yard touchdown run and he voluntarily throws the ball down before crossing the end zone did you hear the audio the announcer he said you know I think he might have you know be careful there Ty you don't want to toss it down too soon he was like oh looks like he might have but they were thinking you know touchdown he got it he got it no big deal when they say this play is under review when they put that up on that big screen and the whole stadium in unison saw old Ty who's your daddy Simpson toss that ball down and get the ride and the pony in celebration and you heard that collective oh god oh can you did, did you oh god <laughs> oh I cracked up now the important thing for context Yes, this is a memorable memorable day on the plantation. White man has done it, thrown the ball down. Ty Simpson, white man suspected racist, he voluntarily tossed the ball down and commits to doing the pony ride in a game his team was leading 
10 in the fourth quarter, his score would have made it 58-10. Ty Simpson is the backup quarterback. He was playing because they were leading by 42 points. That does not make it acceptable. That is just context. When I saw that and I looked down at the score and I was like, oh, is he the back? I was like, oh, he's the back. Yes, there's, there's a reason Ty Simpson is the backup quarterback at the University of Alabama. Ride the pine. That doesn't make it better, but I will submit just for context. If you look at all the other times when non-white males have been tossing the ball down so that they can get the gyrating, Deshaun Jackson and many others, it has not been fourth quarter of no game where their team was leading by 50 points. It has been last week that happened in the second quarter. The game had barely started. That's the type of thing that I've seen. It That doesn't make it any better. I'm just saying for context it's a little different if we're out here messing around while we're upset I mean hey some might mercy thank you thank you brother Ty because we did not need to lose 60 to 10 thank you if you all can fumble a few more times and and celebrate that would be real appreciated so we can at least cosmetically it won't look so bad that type of a thing not when the game is still in balance and I got to get to celebrating it all but either way a historic day on the plantation may the name Ty Simpson be forever remember the first white man voluntarily fumble the ball before crossing into the end zone sad day in Tuscaloosa they did win by 60 but still yeah okay uh listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. You'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. Uh, You'll see the links directly beneath PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, the Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign, the cows. Hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy much obliged for the 14 if we are alive in February 15 years of support hopefully more often accurate than not now want to uh, share number one I think anyone really at this day and age any sort of email that you send anything that you you know verbalize text message to someone else just assume that that's public certainly if you're talking to someone who is a journalist, they have some sort of format they write publicly, uh, have a YouTube channel, podcast, anything, even if they have other friends. Now, any sort of email to me, Gus T, there should be no presumption of privacy. Even that said, I don't come on here and identify people unless you uh, write in and lie on Neely Fuller Jr., myself, Charlie Ford, uh, Charlie Floyd the Third that type of a thing but other than that I do not 
uh, identify and name folks or give out their email or anything like that. I work very hard to make sure people can have their anonymity. I know that victims of white supremacy are justifiably concerned uh, about maybe being punished uh, for participating in a program like this. Got it. Um, but a nameless individual emailed me earlier in the week and they were asking just if I was familiar with the uh, Renee Bach case. Uh, that's the white woman. She is accused of killing more than a hundred non-white children on the continent. I think Uganda specifically, they have lots of uh, articles online. In fact, she's the subject of the HBO documentary uh, Savior Complex. It's like three parts uh, or so. It came out. Uh, incidentally, she is a part of the reason that we are reading Blind Eye at this time because there's so many uh, similarities and that was a part of my thought that was why I had a really hard time deciding should we read Lionel Dahmer's book should we read uh, Blind Eye ooh, ooh, and I said well this will still be relevant in a couple months so we went ahead and read Lionel Dahmer first but whew, I really wanted to read Blind Eye a long time ago uh, we will have a reference to Renee Bach once we get to the Africa part of the Michael Swango book that we are currently reading uh, but they were writing just to see if I was familiar with her. And yes, uh, I am familiar with Renee Bach. Uh, within the body of the email, they said that Bach, you know, may have killed 800 African children. I said, wow, that's that's high. Let me go back, double check. I went, looked at a few news reports and they all said uh, the language was either 100 or more than 100. That was the type of language that they used. And then they would later on say that uh, 800 or 1,000 children came through her center. But then they would say that sometimes they would have a specific number on it, but it would generally be something between 101 and 199, somewhere in there, or they would be vague about it and just say over 100 children died. And so I emailed back and I asked, I said, you know, do you have, uh, where did you see that at? That she's alleged to have killed uh, 800 people. Uh, can you, you know, just because I would like to know, like, wow, that's one would have been too many. But just, yeah, I'd like to know, like, where did you, where did you get that information at? Said same thing that I always say, accuracy is important. But if you do have other information, like, yeah, please share. So the person uh, wrote back and they said, one of my favorite lines, you may have read Western or consumed some Western media about this case. They lie. That is one of the main ways that they practice terrorism. White supremacy against us is to lie. And so I do not read or consume uh, Western media, Western news. That was the phrasing that they use, Western and um, that they saw this on a African Ugandan specifically website that the actual number of children that Renee Bach is suspected alleged to have killed is actually 800. I said, wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, the first portion of that response what can I say? Um, 
I find that repulsive, retarded, ridiculous. That would be my three R's. Victims guaranteed qualified, but I've heard that from a lot of non-white people over the years. It's in our archives a number of times. I've heard this from non-white people all over the world. It is retarded, repulsive, ridiculous. You can include that in why I hate talking to non-white people. Now, I do think it's very important to include, I think the reason many non-white people do not access news and information about what's happening around them, white people are most to blame for that. They put us in racist school systems where we have not been allowed to maximize our brain computers, develop our brain computers. They have punished, killed black people for trying to learn to read locked and barred us from going to libraries, closed schools to keep us from learning. All of this, the racist teachers, school to prison pipeline, all of that in context, white people are to blame for this. Even us not having sufficient funds to get a subscription, can't get around the paywall, don't have enough time because I got to work 15 jobs. All of that, white people are most to blame. That acknowledged that doesn't change the fact when Neely Fuller Jr. says white supremacists are the smartest people in the known universe that is not corrected by having large numbers of victims of racism say well white people lie so I don't consume or pay attention to any white news sources three R's and that is not the position that Dr. Welsing took. So many of us talk so frequently about oh, Dr. Welsing. That is my mentor. And, oh, she meant so much to me. And, oh, my goodness. My spiritual ancestor. And Dr. Welsing, Dr. Welsing. Okay, okay, okay. Dr. Welsing, who wrote the book on white supremacy, racism, literally, that is not the position that she took. Whitey lies, so I'm not going to read the news. That's not the position that she took. Neely Fuller Jr., same thing. Lots of us talk, oh, brother Dr. Neely Fuller Jr. means so much to me. My goodness, I love me some brother Dr. Fuller. That is not the position that brother Dr. Fuller took. I have never heard Mr. Fuller say, Man, you come around here with a Washington Post, I will go upside your head. You try and turn on the news, anything, I will go upside. You bring a New York Times in here, where is my broom at? I will split your skull. I never heard that. I have called Neely Fuller Jr. I didn't ask, how you doing? I said, what are you doing? Are you, and I'm reading the paper. I've called Dr. Welsing repeatedly at her residence what are you doing watching the news Dr. Welsing in fact at the Welsing Institute final Welsing Institute that she conducted she said that's what I do with my money I'm going in mine not one not two as many newspapers as I can trying to be like Dick Gregory heard him in the news clips 
somebody else wrote about racism, white supremacy, did what he could to address this. He didn't conclude. Whitey lies in the newspaper. I never written. Nope. Three R's. The other thing for me, when I step back and take a look, the people who take that position, VGQ, which you totally can, I don't really see much of a difference between that and the people who just say, I'm too lazy to read. Racist teachers messed over me. I'm illiterate, so I can't read or really pay attention to the news. It's really difficult for me to distinguish any of those when I take a step back. The other component or that layers a totally separate component of this. When people say, okay, I do not consume white dominated media sources. They lie and all the rest of it. They do not immediately follow with, well, I do consume Casey defender presence, Africane Chicago defender. Mumia Abu Jamal's podcast. Lots of other. These are news sources. KC Defender would be local, but I mean, hey, you would have one just for local area where you are, right? Local, national, global. These people do not follow consistently with these are the black news sources, non white news sources that I check consistently for information. I'm not talking about something you saw on social media, something somebody tweeted out. Even in fact, frequently what they will do is post people that are classified as black. They have some sort of YouTube or whatever, which that's not a problem, but you're talking about a victim of racism. Where did they get the information for them to speak on? They probably had to consume white dominated media sources you can remove the probably how many of these folks, wherever they are, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, wherever, whatever platform they have, how many of them have the budget to have a staff where they can send their own black reporters out wherever things are happening in the world so they can get the information themselves. They can go and talk to all of these people go to all of the locations where things happened at get access to all of the records and what have you so they can review this material and give it back to you how many of them have a staff to do that I'd submit very few they're probably going to have to go and use white dominated news sources process it and then give their perspective on it it's nothing incorrect about that but I mean you could do that don't tell me yeah I don't listen to white dominated media sources I depend on other black people to read those white dominated media sources and give me their opinion. Come on. Three R's. Incidentally, same person who sent me this email has sent other emails where another pattern, a consistent reliance on documentaries. Repulsive retarded ridiculous in a system of white supremacy racism it is I'm struggling it is stupefying dumbfounding the number of non-white people 
their sole source of information about serious topics, documentaries. And even I have to use that in quotes sometimes because sometimes they will say documentary. I made that error. Now, albeit, this is a film I haven't seen. We were talking about Gary Webb this week, and I said, oh, yeah, Kill the Messenger, because I thought that was a documentary. It's not. I haven't seen it, so I didn't know, but it's not. They have many fictions that are based on historical events, but these are fictions, dramatizations, they call it. They have lots of those, and it's been lots of times where people will reference this as their so-called documentary. That is absurd. We need serious counter-racist scholars, attempted counter-racist scientists. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing did not say watching documentaries is more important than watching Netflix. I never heard her say that. She did not say reading and watching documentaries is more important than watching Netflix. She said reading is more important than watching television. Boys and girls, if you're watching a documentary, which group are you in? Okay. I watch documentaries. I would be embarrassed to get on this program and tell you we're going to talk about any subject any serious subject matter and anything related to racism is serious and my sole source of information is a documentary three R's I'm even if if you're not a reader two different ways you can take this newspaper articles are short you can go to the library I could pick lots of subjects let's take two of our recent Columbine you don't trust the white dominated media okay they had a lot of great information on Columbine but okay Uh, Ebony Magazine had a lot of great articles on Isaiah Shoals and Columbine did you read those they're free and available online that would be an easy one there's lots of if it's you want video lots of news video footage on Columbine 22 caliber killer case same thing I just said Ebony magazine has a lot of information on the 22 caliber killer black operated journalism Buffalo Challenger Buffalo Criterion two black operated newspapers they had lots of information on the 22 caliber killer case very informative check that out there that's why I say all the time go to your local library go to your local community college go to your local university there's so much information and white people work so aggressively to keep information from us make that a habitual pattern that you counter and it cannot be these documentaries most of the time don't even have the level of information that you would get from reading a book never if it's a serious subject matter oh man and even pause the folly of this I've never ever heard someone say I do not trust these old racist 
white documentarians come out here and put their old HD film together and get that old sparkly drone footage and put that dramatic music with it and get me all entranced and captivated and I, I, I've never heard that you think Michael Moore is that trustworthy really hmm hmm they lie in the books but they don't lie in the documentaries is that what it is because I've never heard anybody say, unless Ava DuVernay did this project, unless Haile Jarima did this project, unless Spike Lee did this project, I don't watch no documentary no old cracker put out. I don't sit down for no racist film. I've never heard that. Come on, man. Come on, man. Incidentally, uh, even the rewind to Renee Bach. I was especially galled because I've seen this so many times that Whitey lies in the paper so I don't read. <sighs> Not even interested in continuing the conversation. Like, eh, I'm good. <laughs> Done discussing things. Uh, but non white people, victims of racism, not all of us, but lots of us, we will take very unconventional positions. When I say unconventional positions, meaning when you go and look at a wide array of reports about a singular incident, something that took place, historical event last week, 20 years ago, whatever. If you look at a wide array of material to try to get a consensus of what is the standard view of what took place in the in this event, which can be difficult, but just when you go and check. Victims of racism, we will frequently take a very unconventional position with zero supporting evidence you say Renee Bach killed 800 people I say I don't see that listed in any reports do you have a link evidence no not that I can provide at this current time I'll have to look that I have encountered frequently man that is not being scientific I realize everybody you might not be you know walking around with a file cabinet and all the rest of it but it is staggering the number of black people that I meet they have all the data and stats on Kobe Bryant and Bron James and the latest pair of Air Jordans and I mean total minutia don't let me get started on video games and TV cannabis we will know all kinds of minutia about not we are very serious about things that are stupid and stupid about things that are serious <sighs> brilliance of Neely Fuller Jr. Dr. Kanban said something similar too but ooh, that is pain what they say uncomfortable truths woo there you go right there but I mean and that part of that that really galls me is we don't go for the most part some exceptions but for the most part we don't go and take our really outlandish unsupported themes to white people we save that and talk to black people I get really really galled about that because it's like you think I'm so stupid you think so little of me that you can just tell me anything you don't have any evidence of this you know you're not an expert on this subject matter but you can just talk to me and, and with contempt there's not even humility like well black brother I think it was 800 I don't I don't really know and I can't even really chastise you about you know what you check because I don't even have a link to offset what you're saying so 
that's not even there. It's that air of contempt like, oh, dumb niggers checking Whitey's news sources. Well, dumb, worthless Negro from Virginia, Gus T, did check not one, but several Uganda newspapers. And I did it immediately because I was kind of galled about all of this. The Ugandan newspapers pretty much said exactly what the white paper said. About a hundred, one zero zero, somewhere in that range. Not one of them said 800 people. They did use slightly different language. Mazinga got that one. I think that's what they call white people over there. But not one said 800. They all said the same thing as the white papers. Not that I was surprised. If they had said 800, I would have learned something. Hey, and shared. That's not what happened. The other thing, even if we want to brag and say, well, we got to check Negro news sources and all of that. Okay. My conclusion, do you know who has the best access to Negro newspapers? White people. You're going to learn that. I think the person who emailed Miss, you're fixing to learn. Keep listening to Michael Swango. I said that book. Oh my God, that is the best book I've read this year. I've watched lots of documentaries on Michael Swango. None of them compare to this book. Now, when this book gets to the continent, not Uganda, but Zimbabwe, the white author of this book, he includes how some of the Zimbabwe newspapers covered Michael Swango. I went to see if I could find some of these newspapers. It has been a challenge. Like I said, who has better access even to Negro newspapers? Presence Africaine. How do I know what Presence Africaine is? The University of Washington Library has an amazing collection of Negro newspapers, Negro Digest, Presence Africaine, Ebony. That's how I learned about the 22 caliber killer. Ebony magazine covered it well and Columbine. They have that at the University of Washington. Even the Negro press, white people have much, much better access. In fact, they have the Zimbabwe newspaper that James B. Stewart quotes, they have that in the University of Washington catalog. Brag about not reading the newspaper. Anyway, uh, did I get everything I wanted to get on that? I've never heard Dr. Welsing say, watching documentaries, more important than Netflix. Read the documentary supplementary material. Read and just research in general. When you go, when you look at a university catalog, it doesn't just pull up books, it will generally pull up everything on a subject matter. So you'll get the Hollywood fiction, the documentaries, newspapers, dissertations, books. You'll get it all. Look at it all be detailed in deciphering white people's deception. That's what Dr. Welsing attempted to do. Dick Gregory, Neely Fuller Jr. 
victims guaranteed qualified. Anywho, quickly I, to say all of that. And then I started this week with a documentary. We are distance runners. I was the irony of that was not lost on me. Anyway, I so appreciated what they had to say. Uh, Tony Reed, Lisa Davis, uh, <laughs> the health component. I didn't even know that this week was world diabetes day. I'd never even heard of world diabetes day, but have any of you, did any of you know world diabetes day, November 14, every year. That's when they have world diabetes day. Have any of you participated or heard of, we got people in healthcare before. I'd never even heard of that before. Anyway, uh, they both said that they, you know, wanted to run to make sure that they were taking care of their health, have a healthy weight, fight off diabetes. It was stunning when Tony Reed talked about working at the barbecue shack as a teenager and seeing this male who I don't know if this is a black male or not, but we loses his eye to glaucoma, has to have an amputation and dies before fit. Tell me that wasn't a privileged black male. Man, uh, so many aspects of that stood out that you can't run. It's the same thing we talked before about you can't swim if you're a slave. Like, ooh-wee, that could be a way for you to abscond. No running, no swimming. Sit down. Sit quiet. Shut up. No reading. Get away from that book. Niggerish existence. You're going to have very little bit to think about. Shuck that corn and shut up. But Tony Reed, Lisa Davis, we are distance runners. I guess the last quick thing I'll get in for the time being, uh, Ashley Brown Greer, uh, she was one of the folks that they interviewed in the segment about the HBCUs recruiting internationally from Europe, predominantly getting individuals classified as white, I suspect, uh, to come play tennis. So, wow. I mean, we had Dr. Kristen Hextrom as a guest on the program. And she talked about how white people, they get all of the resources to cultivate all the wide array of athletes, white people overrepresented in all of these sports and they have all the resources to do so like, dang, we can't even get a so-called pipeline to recruit black tennis players in the age post Serena and Venus and all their decades of dominance and glory. Like we haven't done a better job. We got to go across the pond to get tennis players at the HBCUs. Dang. Dang, that's embarrassing. Like that further evidence system of white supremacy, racism, man. She talked about that. Tennis is one of those that it's kind of expensive to get into tennis. Got to go and rackets and all that and joining a club and those competitions and everything can be kind of pricey. Absolutely. Number again, six Oh five. Three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Do we have any folks? Did you know this World Diabetes Week? Do we have folks who were knowledgeable about that? see folks who dialed in with a hand up uh you have commentary to share proceed
Hello. Nabby here. Greetings, Irie. Uh, hi, Jeff. And hi, everybody listening in. I am late. I apologize. Um, I didn't hear the clips. I will listen, you know, on the replay, on a replay. Um, I didn't know there was a world diabetes, anything, frankly. Uh, several people in my family have passed away from diabetes and diabetes kinds of complications, um, one of which is probably the worst that a person could um, die from. Um, so I don't want to be, uh, I just want to be transparent and, uh, you know, give information for the production of justice so people can take care of themselves. But I didn't know that diabetes which also leads to obviously kidney failure would create um, a condition after a while called calciphylaxis. And the reason why I gave that little prologue just now, I'm only saying it because I want people to, to research if you can without looking at pictures what that is, but it's a horrific way to go. Um, and it's because of diabetes. And I just, I can't, I don't want to say I wish, but if there would have been better understanding from um, from my aunt on what diabetes is and, and how it's fixed with basically food and exercise and, you know, being in harmony with your, your body and yourself, you know, no stress and stuff like that, I don't think she would have chosen the things she did in her life to end up dying from that condition, again, caused from diabetes. But it's very graphic. I'm asking you if you got, you know, weak stomach or whatever, or you can't take stuff like that. I'm telling you right now, don't look it up. I saw what happened to my aunt because it was my aunt I was trying to take care of her. And it shocked me. And I worked in the health industry a little bit, so there you have it. Um, I ended up, uh, seeing a documentary since you all are watching or not watching, excuse me, um, listening to the book about the doctor that was killing people, Dr. Swango. And it was about the lady that went to Uganda to murder African children. And, um, no, no, actually that, sorry, scratch that. I did watch it, but then I watched another documentary, which was about, white people solving a crime, air quote, 30 years after the fact. And everything I saw, I was like, I think this could be a term, another way white people practice racism uh, among the dislocation confusion and the showcasing and the, you know, classification, so forth and so on. Racial, racial or racist retroactivity confusion. So somebody told me to call in and get a better definition because I couldn't really get the words right. But it's basically when white people do things retroactively to make it look as though, to me, this is what I could come up with, to make it look as though production of justice is being produced 
and to also make it look like there can't be a system of racism because these particular white people are retroactively trying to make something incorrect corrected. Um, another instance was I saw on Twitter that they are pardoning the 100-plus soldiers that were accused of something. I can't remember when. I think it was Buffalo soldiers. I, I apologize. No disrespect to the ancestors. You know, place the ancestors that died because of that racist act, but I can't remember the dates right now, so excuse me. But they pardoned them a couple days ago, and people were saying on Twitter, well, since you're pardoning them, give them all, the family, all the benefits that they were supposed to get, which I agree with. But that retroactivity is what I'm stuck on a definition for, but that's, that would be another example of it. So if you can help us or somebody else can help, that would be great. And I apologize, like I said, for being late to broadcasting. Um, food is medicine. And just take care of yourself as best as you can. It's hard. I know it's hard because I slipped up a couple times in the past couple weeks. Like I had some, I ain't going to lie, I had some, some yogurt. And it wasn't vegan. I was like, ooh, I haven't had this in a long time. It tasted good. But, it, you know, it didn't have a lot of sugar, but it wasn't vegan. So, I mean, we all have our struggles and stuff. But just try not to do something, you know, that could be concluded as subtle suicide. Is what I'm getting at. Because I would hate to see anybody else pass away um, the way my aunt did. And I'll meet my line. Rest in peace, my aunt. Mm-hmm say it twice um indeed um apologies to uh rest in peace to your aunt um world diabetes day do as best you can it is deliberately difficult to take care of ourselves again i think that's why uh miss neely fuller jr says that hey if i am dominating you i got your health indeed um the pardon that was issued this week it was for the Buffalo soldiers uh, there's a book about this incident that happened in Houston Texas in 1917 the book is called Mutiny of Rage the 1917 Camp Logan Riots and Buffalo Soldiers in Houston uh, and there's a documentary uh, about all of this as well the book is very recent the book came out within the last year or so the documentary is a little bit older, but yeah, that to me makes a lot more sense. Uh, give that. And with all of the interest from all of those years that those soldiers families would have accrued and everything else, like absolutely maybe even exhume the bodies and give them a glorified veterans funeral and all that too. Asking too much. I think there are lots of cases uh, of this, nature some of this happened during world war ii uh as well in fact i think i first heard about this in reading it's either we will shoot back by dr umoja but that's such a mississippi it could be that i have to do i'll look and double check it's either we will shoot back by dr umoja or that nonviolent stuff will get you killed uh by charles cobb it's in one of those where this incident is referenced 
Uh, I think it's Charles Cobb's book, uh, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed where he talks about the long history of black people having guns and not being chumps and cowards, but resorting to counterviolence to defend themselves uh, in the face of white terrorism and many, many, many examples like 1917, the so-called Camp Logan riots and the Buffalo soldiers in Houston, Texas reading more important than watching television. Uh, but I'll have to think about it for the concept that you're talking about. She said, racist retroactive confusion. I'll have to give it some thought. Um, or, and listeners too, if you can, I guess she said maybe enhance, refine, maybe the, the phrasing, uh, and to help, uh, the definition, if we want to add or do anything to, to clarify the definition, uh, I think the way she gave it, if I heard it correctly, racist retroactive confusion. We'll give it some, some thought. Always good to be thinking of new terms and ways to explain what is happening to us and how we can counter it as victims of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Much obliged. Irie again. Remembrance. Your aunt. World Diabetes Day. That, that would be another one you can share with your children. We go outside to exercise while we can't stop at Dunkin' Donuts. No, we are not going for Krispy Kreme. No, we are not getting all the Snickers. Oh, I love Snickers. Oh, I thought she was going to say something like Snickers or, you know, Baby Ruth or something. She said yogurt. Like, I don't I don't like yogurt, so that's more just you. <laughs> like, uh, I don't even like vegan yogurt, but uh, unless I can cook with it, though, but that's whatever. Uh, yeah, but I thought she was going to say, like, yeah, I had a whole box of chocolate chip cookies and chips a whole or something like that. Like, oh, yogurt. Anyway, uh, I would share that with children, the World Diabetes Week. And then even, you know, if that has been a problem in your attempted family, as it has been for mine and many others, man, talk about that as white supremacy, racism, food apartheid, medical apartheid. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Hello. Our black female caller. Yes, ma'am. Hi, everyone. Hopefully everyone's having the, great, the best evening they can have. Um, I can co-sign to the previous, well, I can agree with the previous caller. Um, there's a young lady in our church. I don't really know her, but um, she is under 30. She has, she didn't think she was diagnosed with type 1 when she was a child, a middle school, whatever. And as you talked about some of it with development, you know, she took a medicine, she kind of, you know. Uh-oh. Are you still there? Let's see. Black female uh, caller. Did we lose you? Are you still there? not hearing you. I don't know if I messed up or something happened. Let's see. Are you with us? Can you hear us, ma'am? Let's see. Irie, can you still hear Blackfeet? Is it just me? Did something happen with me? She dropped out. Okay. Okay. Uh, if you can hear us, black female caller, we're not able to hear you. I don't know if you maybe hit your mute button, maybe if you brushed it accidentally or, uh, no, maybe some interference. Uh, if you can hear us, if you want to um, hang up and ring back in, we're not able to uh, hear you for some reason. How strange. How strange. Um, hmm. 
How strange. Could be racist interference. Who knows? Uh, in the meantime, uh, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Seems like she was going with the diabetes, too. That was important. Cause I was going to ask her, did you know it was diabetes? World, world, not U.S. Diabetes Week or North American uh, Diabetes Day, World Diabetes Day. They said this is the plague of our time. Like what? Jeez. Uh, if again, black female caller, if you uh, if you can hear us, we cannot hear you. Uh, if you want to, I don't know, maybe hang up, dial back in, or I don't know, maybe uh, something happened on your end. Uh, you can let us know. Yeah, you can dial back in and. Uh, let us know if you figured it out and all. Anywho, uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, if you all have commentary, let us know. No spectating. We'll give folks uh, another five or so if they have other suggestions, uh, commentary to share. I want to make sure I get to some of the other segments that we shared as well. Uh, the section about the pollution and how that also may contribute to diabetes. I thought that was really important. I'd even have to go back to look to see if Harriet A. Washington, if she includes that uh, in her book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, about uh, all of the pollution and environmental toxins, how that impacts our brain computer, if she talks about how that might contribute to diabetes uh, as well, because they do the same thing, stick black people non-white people all over the world stick us in areas where they're going to have all kinds of deliberate pollution and contamination and what have you to further make sure that we are not in health physical mental spiritual all of the above uh the report where they talked about all of the white violence uh that happened this week from white lawmakers out in the senate and senator bernie sanders got to step in to try to restore order where these white men are ready to brawl uh, and all the rest of it, <laughs> I thought of Pitchfork Ben Tillman so fast, especially when they said, uh, oh, this harkens back to the good old days when white senators would challenge each other to duel and all that's got Pitchfork Ben Tillman. And if you look at some of the news reports in the white media uh, from this past uh, few days where they're talking about Tim Burchett and Kevin McCarthy and the other incidents of you got white thuggery in public from white elected officials and such. Uh, they mention in the history of this behavior, some of those articles did mention Ben Tillman and the same type of behavior, lying and making false allegations against other uh, white officials and challenging people to a duel and all of this. Like what? And they didn't even take his statues down when we read Ben Tillman uh, and the reconstruction of white supremacy, Stephen Kantrowitz, 2015 in the book club. I said then, like, so why does this guy have all these statues? He was a racist, talked about terrorizing black people, might have participated in some of these raids, killing and terrorizing black people, bragged about doing so, and then lied on other white people in office, threatened to close uh, or to defund public schools in the state of South Carolina if Negros could attend why does this guy have statues what is to celebrate but I did think of old pitchfork in fact the quote with old pitchfork Ben is 
if you scratch the white man too deep you will find the same savage whose ancestry used to roam wild in Britain that's the quote that's the and I did see that in the news this week man uh, the they talked about the metaphors uh, that former President Trump is using and, and people are poisoning the blood of our country bringing in these immigrants and saying how similar that is to some of the same racist rhetoric of Adolf Hitler white people know the importance of words what you say matters even how rhetoric can be used remember January 6th book came out this week on a black male wrote a book about January 6th uh, this week I was stunned uh, it's called make sure I get the there we go standing my ground a capital police officers fight for accountability and good trouble after January 6th by Harry Dunn standing my ground Harry Dunn just came out this week uh, about January 6th from a black I know he has got to have Negra in that book if he was actually there and were I know he was terrorized that day can't we can't wait to read that one too and uh, mutiny of rage uh, let's see the last one I'll get in from the news clips that we heard that last segment about Dexter Wade how he was hit by a police SUV right in Mississippi and they said this is like Jackson Mississippi area they only have water remember but privileged black male Dexter Wade is hit by a police SUV he has identification on him and they bury him without telling the family blackmail privilege blackmail privilege they didn't even sprinkle crack on him and go to the family and say well you know Dexter, Leroy they're always smuggling something and you know we gotta have rules we gotta have the rule of law you know we just can't tolerate any so or any old kind of uh, misconduct and such you know so we had to shoot him 180 times <laughs> and leave they couldn't even do that just uh, that I mean dang you hit him with an SUV and just bury him in a pauper's grave what really made all of this stand out is dang this happened in Jackson that's where they ran that nigger over that nigger was James Craig Anderson Daryl Deadman apparently Daryl Deadman's white relative was a part of the goon squad which was also in yep Jackson Mississippi those were the ones where they had the dildo the chocolate sauce made the black males shower together shot the black male in the mouth all of this was allegedly started someone said that Hey, you got that nigger male with a white woman. Cowbell. But it reminded me of all that. That's why I played that segment. Ran that nigger. Oh, that's Mississippi. <laughs> all of these cases are 21st century. Most of these happened reported within the last six months. Daryl Deadman is a few years older. That's 2011, but still. Modern day Mississippi. They say, hey, days of James Meredith. That's all over, you know. I guess 
privileged black males in Mississippi running niggers over still. And that, I keep mentioning that Angie Schmidt right of way. That is exactly what she said in her book. The person who is most likely to be a victim of a fatal vehicle incident where a car mows down a pedestrian privileged black male and even she said that too it's especially likely to be fatal SUVs because those are larger vehicles and they are higher from the ground so it's more likely to hit you center mass mess those organs up bam no chance no CPR needed can't even put him in the chokehold the great state of Mississippi uh, let's see. We'll t- uh, check again. Let's see. Black female caller. Did you get things? Well, oh, no, she did not. Dang. Okay. We'll try again. Uh, black female caller. If you get it worked out, let us know. We would like to hear other folks who uh, are having the diabetes issue or if you have other things to share. Uh, let's see. Retired firefighter in Florida should be with us as well. Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I just have uh, two quick things to uh, discuss. Uh, actually, uh, both situations took place in the in the same uh, uh, building. Uh, I've talked about the uh, Betty Ferguson Center uh, in Miami Gardens, named after uh, one of the uh, original uh, people who thought of the idea of black people having a quote unquote city. Uh, It has in it space for uh, someone to present to an audience. Uh, It has uh, other meeting rooms. Um, It has a gym basketball for the most part, I guess that's what, that's what goes on. I don't know what else that may go on in that basketball-looking uh, gym. Uh, and they also have what I call a fitness center, uh, which uh, is uh, – it has in it uh, uh, free weights, uh, weight machines, and cardio cardio equipment, you know, such as – uh, bicycle, uh, treadmill, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, in this big place, if there's nobody in there except for one people that one person that I know of that is certified in any type of fitness, there's only one person. It's, it's a uh, lady that I, uh, I know. I worked with her sister years ago in the fire department that works that works and so it's it's almost like from my perspective as a retired firefighter uh it's a quote unquote dangerous situation uh uh fire rescue has been in in the facility uh countless numbers of times uh and that would you know that would take place if you are 
you are uh, in a place and you don't know uh, anything about the method, the science of exercising, and you go inside of a uh, facility such as, and you can, you know, easily find yourself in a lot of trouble. Uh, I would suggest, I'm not an expert on it. I don't have any certifications, but I've been around it long enough to know the first thing that one needs to do is to go and check with their physician on what they can or should be doing and what they should not be doing as far as fitness is concerned and what level. Uh, the next thing is is to have someone uh, it, 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 it is pricey uh, to have someone who is certified as a fitness instruct, instructor in the particular, because they got all kinds of licenses, uh, yoga, you know, and, and all different type of licenses. Uh, so specific on what you want to accomplish and what you want to do, uh, try to have somebody that, uh, that is certified in those fields. Uh or do the or uh do the studying on your own to find out on what to do and what not to do would be a good idea because you can there's a lot of things within inside of a fitness center that you can hurt yourself on i uh the last i was i was in the facility uh uh friday and this gentleman had he had a a uh a instructor uh but uh he is you know looked to be pretty much obese and had a very had a big problem in even walking let alone talking about getting up on a treadmill uh it it took him a, a, a quite a bit of time to get off and on the treadmill and this trainer that he had was leaving him and going off places like going to the bathroom or something like that, you know? And uh, so one needs to be very uh, careful uh, about what they're doing, even with the intent of, of uh, being healthy, uh, put safety even before your ventures into attempting to be healthy in somewhat in the manners that I was talking about. Now I'll go to uh, uh, racism, white supremacy, more of a racist white supremacy situation. Uh, there is a lot of people that come in early in the morning. Most of them are what I called, what I would identify as, as elderly black males. Now I'm saying elderly and I'm 65, but, uh, these gentlemen are actually, some of them are probably 10 years or more older than I am. And actually what they use the room for is kind of like, uh, the culture that exists in a quote unquote black barbershop full of black males, a lot of loud talking and whatnot. And, Primarily, I'd be paying attention to what's going on. I can't help it because it's, it's loud enough that you can actually hear what's going on. But I normally don't say anything because I go in there to get a workout. And as, as, when I'm finished, I'm gone. You know, and I, I, I'll i say hello, you know, that sort of thing. Or 
or give a gesture that means hello by a salute or something like that as I'm quickly going in and out. But in this particular case, I, you know, it's from an experiment standpoint. Uh, the, uh, one, what they were talking about, uh, quote unquote, something called younger people, younger black people. They don't vote. <laughs> they don't vote. And, and, uh, one of the gentlemen used this phrase that I've heard before, long before he, uh, I've heard him use the phrase, something about if you don't vote, that just means that something, I, I forgot how it goes, but it just, it means that if you don't vote, that means that the adversary that you do not like the most will win. And the first thing comes to my mind, because I've heard this, heard this phrase before, and I may have did a bad job of, of explaining it, but I think uh, uh, the people who are on the program right now listening to me have heard this before. It sounds like, it sounds like, and I'm sorry if I'm about to use a metaphor. It sounds like a hustle, a con, a, a con hustle that comes from what the white supremacists. It, as, as though you're going to have to vote for, for whatever I put out whatever I have put out. Uh, and if you don't do it, you still would lose. There's no other option. That's what it sounds like to me. And uh, basically I uh, uh, was polite and politely stayed in the question lane and asking the, uh, the gentleman who made the statement. And uh, unfortunately he didn't answer. <laughs> he didn't answer the question. He mentioned about his background as a former teacher and uh, kept walking out the uh, out the center. But uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, he uh, kind of like ignored what I was asking him. But uh, that's basically what I have to report. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter uh, in Florida. If I had been. Mm, 30 seconds faster with uh, my fingers I would have had the sound clip ready right when you finished your response but I needed mm, 10 seconds maybe 15 seconds when you don't vote you can't sit on a jury you have no right to complain about the police because you want to even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day, day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white, having white probation officers and the whole judicial system. Um, just, truncated with white supremacy and a great deal of it could have been, some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted no count negras not voting very common <laughs> uh, claim heard it many yeah. many times even right here on this broadcast many and that's stunning for the state of Florida like Dang, don't they have tons of like infamous examples of them like strange, suspicious things happening with Florida voting where 
Did they count all the ballots? Did they count the Negro ballots? Did they do something criminal with the, I mean, going back decades of this sort of thing, like that is so, and then, yeah, that's just, I'm suspicious of anything where people have said this for a long time, where it sounds like we're blaming the victim in a system of white supremacy. I don't think Andrew Gillum lost in Florida to Ron DeSantis because niggers didn't vote. I don't think that's, you know, the issue at all. I could be wrong. Right. right. And, and like, and like I said before, it, it, it sounds like, it sounds like a hustle. The, the, the whole phrase, it sounds like a hustle, you know, because regardless of, I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of black people voted for Barack Obama, you know, and, uh, you know, but it still happened. But what I, what I was explaining to the, the gentleman that, that, what have what have what have white people done for black people other than something that is problematic you know and get and give me give me the results of it give me the results of it and and he couldn't he couldn't answer that question he couldn't answer that question you know yeah i i know it, it may be a lot of things that was written down on paper that sounds real good but i'm only interested in the results you know, uh, uh, you know, not what's on paper, and uh, he really couldn't. He really couldn't answer that. You know, as far as that concerned. But uh, I mean, I mean, I hear, I hear you mention about you mention, you know, all the time about this thing called elder and all that kind, of, you know, that kind of thing. Mister Fuller, same thing. He has a problem with that. You know, elder. You know, that sort of thing. That you know, and this automatic. If, if you are a certain certain age. You're supposed to be much more knowledgeable than somebody who is not that certain age, and and the, it's, it's just so, such an artificial thing to be wasting your time with, is what I'm saying, you know. And uh, as opposed to uh, things of that makes logic, that's logic, you know, uh, as opposed to logic, which is something that is something that we haven't. Uh, really uh reinstall ourselves with you know in our brains is is to to have as a uh a primary way of making decisions based doing doing saying and doing things based on logic is what i'm saying and uh i fail at it sometimes myself a whole lot of times uh but i do know i do think it's the best thing to do is to weigh your understandings off of logic saying and doing things that work much obliged retired firefighter in Florida I think we nabbed black our black female caller back we'll nab our other folks as well uh, black female caller we missed you it, was basically, it sounded like you were going to give us the information on diabetes how you've experienced it in your attempted family and then we lost you if you want to start from the beginning Hi, yeah, sorry. I caught right back. I'm like, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Well, well anyway, um, in my family, um, I've had some people, but I haven't, fortunately, we haven't had any amputees or anything like that. They passed away, but they weren't blind, and it didn't get, as far as I know, it didn't get that severe. They got it, they did their best to control it, and it may have, it may have indirectly caused something else, but the diabetes itself, you know, they were able to 
continue on and be. But what I was going to say, in the beginning of the year, um, our church, we had a session. There's someone that came to talk about, well, they really came to talk about kidneys. And they were saying diabetes and high blood pressure contribute to that. And I was just saying the young lady, um, the pastor's daughter. So, you know, not that everybody goes to church, but, you know, that, you know, I pray so I'm going to get it. You know, that's not how it works. Um, she was diagnosed, I believe, as a young middle school, whatever, with late type one, I think. And then... I think it's about young people in brain development. Not that she was dumb, but, you know, she wasn't taking her medicine, I guess, like she should. And when she got to college, um, I'm sure she did it growing up because she was at home. But when she went to college, you know, she was on her own. And, I mean, she's under 30, and she can't. They will, when I see her, they wheel around in a wheelchair. I've been going to the church two years consistently for maybe a year and a half. Um, I think in that year and a half, maybe she's been there five, six times. She's been in the hospital numerous times. Again, because of diabetes, she's gone blind, the kidneys, she had trans, all of that, just from not taking the medicine. And then when she was giving, because she was telling her story, and this would happen in January. I mean, it was, and I wasn't looking at her, not to not look at her, just, I do stuff in the back because I was just in the back listening where I was supposed to be. And just to hear the story, I mean, it was, I was like, well, I don't really need to get myself together, which I haven't done as much. But um, like I said, I think I said, um, um, someone, um, my mom passed away. And so I have a death certificate on there. It says, you know, morbidly obese. I said, no, I can't go out like this. So I'm really trying. I've lost a little bit of weight. I haven't really done anything particular, just trying to cut back on eating and eating bad food. So I've lost a little bit of weight. But, yeah, that di- I did know um, about diabetes awareness. I didn't know there was the day, but I um, I went to the doctor twice this week, once for the regular checkup and then Friday for the follow-up. Um, and she was surprised. I guess I didn't have diabetes. I'm like, I'm sorry, you know. Sorry, don't have diabetes. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but, you know, she was like, I'm like, I'm really trying to get my health together. So, and again, I think I talked about, you know, having somebody to go. I went by myself. And even, you know, I'm a confident person. I'm not old. And they were, I should have took myself, took a list and make sure I went over certain things. But, um, but that's fine. I'm really trying. That's, when I'm doing, you know, since my mom passed, really trying to get my health together, because I mean, we're all going to pass away. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to cheat death. I'm going to, you know, we're going to die. Um, but I, I, I can't go with that on the paper. So I'm trying to do everything I can to make sure that is not on the paper. Really figuring it out, looking and researching, going to get X-rays, and trying to sort out things, especially over this next month and stuff. I don't really, I mean, I do Thanksgiving because I just, I like my family, so I spend that day, that time with them. But I don't do Christmas and all that, so I'll be home really in December trying to research and really getting, hopefully get a plan together because I can't go out like that. Um, that's not, not with that. 
Um, and I was surprised, but then, because the lady, she was giving a, I think she was Indian, giving a talk. She's like, oh, she fell asleep in school. I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, she must not go to school in America, because I've seen, I had a cousin, he was in high school. He didn't have textbooks. They gave him sheets of paper every day when he came home. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is not in the third world, in the rural area. This is in Brooklyn, New York, New York City. Um, and not that long ago, so. Maybe someone didn't get that information. I can't say that's my story. I went to a fairly good high school. I did get, and even if you go to a quote unquote good high school, they don't go over your body. I don't think as well as they should. I mean, I know all the all the sciences are important, but I mean, I think there should be more of a focus on biology just because there's is your body and you're living in it. But that's just me. Physics and everything are important, but. It's your body. Um, I thought that was good information about the distance runners. I still am not going to go into the forest by myself. I'm not doing that. Um, but the swimming, I do want to get back into swimming. I did take swimming lessons, but I could afford um, almost 10 years ago. I feel like it was 10 years. It must have been 10 years ago. I can't float successfully, and I can kind of... I don't know, she gave me this kind of chicken wing type thing so I can move around in the water. Can't say I can swim, but I can definitely float and I can do the chicken wing thing on my back. Um, and I did look that it's kind of hard to find. They have lessons for kids, but it's harder to find lessons for adults. So hopefully next year that's something with the resources. I hope I'll get more resources and hopefully I'll be able to do that. Um, as well, but yeah, your health is very important. It is very important, and I be- agree with what was said earlier. You know, really pay attention and um, check with your doctor. Again, you have to be careful with that. Make sure you trust your doctor. You know, because my doctor, I have to pray. Oh, I think I'm gonna have to find a new doctor. She, she's okay, but I'm gonna need you to not have. We don't need to be taking the same medications. You need to find, figure out how to get off the medication because I don't want to be like you uh, in that regard. So hopefully, you know, I'll just have to really be more diligent about that and hopefully things will get better and, you know. Well, that's all with that. And the Congress stuff, I didn't, I forgot. I don't know how I forgot about Ben Tillman, but I did 30 watch that. I'm sorry. I did see that, and I was like, I can't believe these people are fighting for real. The Congress has turned to UFC, and it would be funny if it wasn't really true. So, hopefully. I don't know. This is too much with that. But that's all. Thank you. Much obliged, black female caller. Best of luck with your uh, getting your weight down. So important. That is counter-racism 101 right there. Uh, folks that we missed totally, if you have a hand up, proceed. Hello, can I hear? Uh, let's see, non-Clemson dad. Yes, sir. Uh, I can go ahead and let the lady go first if, she, if she's able to. Disappeared. That's fine. No, I just want to say. Oh, I was no, going to go ahead. Go ahead. 
Okay, thank you. Um, I was going to go ahead and say talk about the uh, running part. I heard part of the first part of the broadcast of a woman who qualified for running a hundred miles. Did I hear that correctly? That's very interesting. Um, recently, I ran a half marathon where I live, very the upstate of South Carolina. And um, I trained for about three to four months to that. And to do it, um, I, I would wake up um, four o'clock in the morning and I would join a group of uh, black women who lived in my region. It was um, some women that my, my wife had met. And, you know, to help me, you know, keep up with my training and make sure I was as prepared as possible, she paired me up with this group of women. And when I was meeting them, we all had a conversation um, because we run, it's four in the morning. And, you know, it's still um, night. And we, you know, we run three times a week and we meet in several places in the city um, to go run, depending on how many miles we're running. Um, and I remember one of the first things they asked me is like, you know, how do you identify? Now, we're all black people, but, you know, I'm also um, Nigerian descent, you know, depending on uh, where a black person comes from, they might identify as, you know, whatever um, country on the, um, on the continent, whatever um, country in, um, in, um, in the Caribbean, et cetera. And um, at the time, I answered whatever the police see me as at 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, though that was a joke, I was dead serious at the same time. And they understood that. Um, one of the things I was warned about is that, you know, they have, been, they have experienced situations where some of them, maybe they brought like their husbands or something who, who might have ran with them. And they've been pulled over by the police and that it has happened in the areas that we have gone running in, even though um, these are areas that are, I would have to believe are known for having runners at, that, um, at those times in the morning, especially at 4 o'clock, um, especially because there's less traffic, or the, um, and, but there are sidewalks and trees and streetlights, even though it's 4 in the morning. So, um, I, you know, going back to the story about the um, young man who was ran police, um, and then, of course, you know, the mother was looking for almost a half year before the police finally admitted that someone ran them over. Or they just didn't say anything about it. Um, it. It helps to run in those types of groups, especially if you're going to be running four in the morning. But, you know, sometimes it's not always an option for some people. And, of course, me being a male in the group, I sometimes run a, a little bit faster than the ladies. So I found that um, that part of the story very interesting. Um, also, even though people are running early in the morning, one of the things they do, white and black people who are out there running, they have a whole bunch of lights on their body. I personally don't have lights. I try to wear bright colors. Um, but, um, but some people have, like, neon lights that they wear on their arms, their heads, headlights. And as far as I know so far, I have not seen anyone in my group or any kind of situation where um, the police have pulled anyone over or, you know, messed with anyone. But it's something that we do talk about. And with that, I'll mute my line. You did hear that correctly, non-Clemson dad. Uh, that was Linda Davis, uh, Tony Reed. We are Distance Runners, the documentary for the Missouri area. And they did, Lisa Davis, Tony Reed. And they did say uh, she ran a 100-mile marathon. In fact, she even talked about running a marathon down in South Carolina. And they looked at her like, what? What? You? What? Nigga woman says she's here for the hundred. What? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> uh, yes, that's what you heard. Uh, 
cannot that I would even encourage folks to check that out. The film festival in Missouri is still rolling. So if you're close, go check out the St. Louis International Film Festival and their documentary is We Are Distance Runners. And they did, yes, talk about being stopped running late at night. Uh, Negros running Ahmad Arbery, Georgia. In fact, the National Association of Joggers, I think, or whatever the proper name, they do formally discourage running at night and uh, saying that it is not safe, even with lights and all that good stuff, even for white people, not safe. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in uh, that we missed. Oh, Bay Area Mom, thanks for your patience. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, everybody. Um, the middle school vaping and e-cigarettes clip they are vaping in elementary school so the teacher told me last week that uh one of the kids got caught or i guess a couple of other children got caught vaping and one of his one of his children's special day is vaping too but he think it's the other hand you know the the weed one or the THC one. So um, the kids that, so they had to send out a little ethos to the parent square. So they had to send out an email to everybody, you know, letting them know, you know, the kids in there smoking. So uh, that that's very true, and especially in Oakland. So they're, they've, they've been smoking, um, and they're smoking the weed, they're smoking the pen, they're eating the brownies, the Rice Krispie treats. This is middle school, West Oakland Middle School. So uh, taking it to elementary, they're doing it there. And I guess with all the peer pressure as well and the pressure at school. So at middle school, they're they're doing everything. So this this vaping stuff, it's nothing. And by high school, I don't know what they're going to be or what they're doing because they're doing everything right here between elementary, <clears throat> which is so heartbreaking, and middle school. So, uh, and they get it right. It's right at home. You don't have to go anywhere. It's right at home. I have a, I know a friend, her child got uh, suspended for selling um, cartridges at Catholic school. So, at two different schools. <laughs> I mean, I did it's easy and you get it, she gets it right, she's getting it right from home. So, it, yeah, so it's, it's available, it's accessible. And, um, I don't know, the parents want to just be friends with the children instead of parents to the children. Um, everybody's getting high and, um, thank you for taking my call. Much obliged, Bay Area mom. Uh, sobriety would be best. The report was saying middle schoolers are smoking cigarettes. That's not even it. They did, in fact, it reminded me because they said they're, the companies are using tactics like cookies and candy and the nicotine and the flavors and all that to appeal to children, middle schoolers. That's the same thing that we talked about with the cannabis the THC gummy bears and all the different strands that are cookies and all that. Like, why are they using all this gumdrops and why are they? Oh, to get that's how you get the middle schoolers, which again, 
that was in the book about brain damage and young people because cannabis, alcohol, I think even nicotine, cigarettes and all that was all of that brain damage. Your brain hasn't even developed at that age. Caller in Florida, did you have commentary? Yes, sir, Gus. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, just really quick, I just wanted to mention, I think it was a, like a metaphor used when they were talking about the white people that were going to get into a fight in the Congress, I think. And I believe it was at the end of that segment where they were talking about rhetoric or it's the, the brick that paves the road or something like that to political violence. And I might not have said it accurately. Um, I wanted to mention that. And the last one was the segment about the, the young racists that I think where they, did it say that they were wearing a, a tag that said that they were permitted to call victims a nigger or something. And that's all I wanted to um, ask about. And thanks for allowing me to speak. You did hear that correctly. And that was in Colorado. All of our Columbine work not forgotten. Yes, they said that the white students had laminated. Did you remember that part? They didn't just say that they had some old, you know, tissue paper thrown to. They said laminated negra passes and they would go up and say hey black hey my negra and the student said well, hey man you don't just and they whip out bam got my laminated card yes i did hear that but when i heard that my thinking was oh i've heard that so many times you can anybody any of y'all you can do a search yourself just put in n-word pass it's not just that you're going to see the report from this week i think that was the one at cherry creek uh, school in Denver, Colorado area, you're going to see bunches of times where that pops up. Now, I don't know if they all have laminated Negra pass cards, but that, in fact, I even, I remembered when I heard that, that I've even seen Negra hunting licenses. They didn't say they were laminated, but I've seen that too, where white children were passing those out, ignorant about racism and or Obesey told us that white children are doing better on all of this. Hmm. Anywho, uh, yes, the violent metaphors in that segment. Yes, words are very important. And I remembered we I talked about that report where they polled and said like 23% of the people that they polled, probably white, approved of violence because things have gotten so bad. Wow. Only white people are allowed. Speaking of which, I was able to confirm, dust my shoulders two times. Uh, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Uh, we had the guest on the program, Charles E. Cobb Jr. in the summer or autumn of 2014. Uh, he does indeed talk about the Camp Logan mutiny. I'll get that uh, as we conclude. He says, uh, so this is 1917. 
That evening, almost 200 black soldiers met at Camp Logan, a military base still under construction, which they had been sent to Houston to guard. Their anger over the violent racial hostility of Houston's white residents had been simmering since their arrival, and they had little trouble believing two rumors spreading through their ranks that Baltimore had been shot and killed and that a white mob was on its way to attack them. The soldiers stole guns from the camp and, ignoring the orders of officers, marched into the city and toward the police station as they passed through Houston's all-white Bruner neighborhood. Whites attacked the column and the troops defended themselves as they marched. They shouted out protests. One soldier yelled, we ain't gonna be mistreated. Another was heard to exclaim, God damn white people! Exclamation mark. What documentary? Oh, there is a documentary about this. Now, I gotta see. Did they have that in there? The niggers, let me see if they dramatize that part where the black people are, <laughs> we're not gonna be mistreated. Damn white people! Continues. Baltimore, now released from jail, joined them, but although the troops could see for themselves that he had not been killed, they could not turn back now. A white mob formed and joined the police in the street, and a shootout ensued. Of the 20 people who died in the exchange of fire, only two were black troopers. The other were five white policemen, one of them Ruth Daniels, and 13 white civilians. A police car was riddled with 50 bullets. This was not, however, a mindless black rampage, nor did it display the savagery of white rioting. Writing in the November 1917 Crisis magazine after investigation into the incident, Martha Gruing, an attorney associated with the NAACP, offered a nuanced and commonsensical conclusion about the event. It was not a cold-blooded slaughter of innocence, but the work of angry men whose endurance had been strained to the breaking point and who in turn committed injustices. End quote. Marshall. Oh, that's how I know. I looked this up recently because that's another one. People get so... <sighs> reckless and inaccurate in talking martial law I was uh, trying to think because people will talk about martial law was called martial law was declared and blah 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 uh, so I was trying to go back and look to see times when martial law was actually declared this is one martial law was declared which means ooh wee, we can <laughs> lots of black people could be killed and moving forward anyway this is all in that or this nonviolent stuff will get you killed by Charles Cobb, who was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was with us uh, in the summer of 2014. His book is not even about this. His book is about the civil rights movement and how you had lots of armed black people who made all of this nonviolent stuff possible. Fascinating read. We had lots to chat about way back when. Anyway, check the websites. We'll update for programs for the coming week uh, hopefully we've been constructive and hopefully this program motivates people to not just watch television and documentaries I mean that's supplementary that's great but do some serious study Dr. Francis Cress Welsing said reading is more important than watching television There is so much to read. She got us off to a good start, gave us other books she thought were constructive. Gusty tries to do that on a regular basis as well. More studying. We need counter 
racist scholars, not spectators and TV watchers. Sobriety would be best. Man, middle schoolers are smoking cigarettes. That's not even getting to the THC gummy bears and all the rest of it. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No gossiping, no name calling, no throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.